0: Internet, what is up? This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Unity Tactical. Unity Tactical, for all things weapon-centric. Go to their page, unitytactical.com, check them out. They have that new Axon switch for all of your tactical illumination, run your light, run your laser, weapon-mounted laser. The newest thing that they're going to drop sometime this year that they released at SHOT Show is their new FTC four power magnifier. So if you're one of those fellows like me that enjoys running a flip up magnifier on a red dot site on a short gun, they've got a new magnifier and it's four power. It's the size of everybody else's three power. So you're getting some extra magnification. It's got an aluminum body on it. So it's super lightweight. It looks like it's going to be a great piece of gear. We're waiting to get our hands on one to do some field testing and evaluation on it. So look forward to that upcoming video on our YouTube channel. But check out unitytactile.com. Okay, let's get into this week's guest of the podcast. Uh, we recorded this at SHOT Show, and without further ado, here's our good friend, Todd Fairbairn from Audi Gear. I know, things are getting tougher when you can't get the thumb off the bottom of the barrel,
1: wide open for all the future now, it's looking fucking new! All right. Well, if you're, you know,
0: I've been you, doing this for a minute, so I'm, I'm versed. I can, I can, <laughs> I can, t- I can mix it
1: up. I can mix it up. And we'll still be friends when you leave here. Like All right, want. that's so, good to know. Yeah, so. I'm just wondering what the internet's gonna happen. Uh, I mean, here's it. Get some like fireballs thrown no, at me.
0: Here's my thing with the internet. Fuck them. And do you know why? <laughs> because you will never make every single person happy. And you know what? My audience turns in. They t- t- turns in. They tune in because they know what they've signed up for and they like it. Like right. they're, they're here cause they like it. And a lot of my audience, I've, I've had a lot of people message me and they're like, you know what, dude, I don't agree with you on that one point or that one podcast, but like, I love, you know, all your other stuff. So I'm going to keep tuning in and like, and I've had really good interactions with my listeners, you know, in social media and DM'd and, you know, we've, we go back and forth and. You know, there's sometimes, it, sometimes the water gets a little rough, but it it, it's, uh, it always, it always ends up good, but, uh, you will never make every single person yeah. on the internet happy. There's always going to be somebody yeah. that's going to criticize. There's always going to be somebody that has something, yeah. you know, negative to say. I mean, Instagram, I mean, social media, unfortunately is like just, it's a cesspool of just people sometimes that are just super negative and they're, they don't, you know, they don't have any direction in their own life and they hate their life and they're they just want to lash out and be trolls and just create drama.
1: Yeah, I wonder. I, I, I see some of these comments these people are writing on some of the stuff that seems pretty cut and dry and basic. And you're like, man, where do these people come from? Mm-hmm. What planet are they from? Right. It's like, yeah, it's nuts. It is nuts. I'm like, guys, relax. You don't have a life. Like, You need a job. You yeah. need a girlfriend. You need to get laid. Yeah. Something needs to change. Yeah. Go, go take a walk, man. Yep, Take a deep breath.
0: I agree with you. Yeah, and that's, you're exactly right. That's exactly right. So, um, you know, you always get the most, I, I find it funny because I always get the like most harsh, you know, criticism or like I get the most like trolling from um, uh, accounts that like have no profile photo, have like three followers and zero posts.
1: Is that even a real human and, like, being? No bio.
0: Well, I mean, in some cases it could be a bot. In some cases it's like, it's usually somebody who just doesn't want any skin in the game and just wants to like right. troll and talk shit. Right. Um, or, you know, like I'll, I'll, you know, other profiles or accounts that I've seen where like they'll put up a profile picture and it'll be like bone frog operator 69. And it's like some fucking, you know, 16 year old kid <laughs> living in his mom's basement and he, you know, has a, bone frog on his profile picture and then like has all you know pictures of fucking all of his like love of you know all of his like navy seal fanboy shit all over his page and i'm just like you know how old are you i've had kids like straight up like i've asked them i've been like they have these like just wild ferocious crazy opinions and i'm like hey can i ask you a question how old are you 16 i'm like okay thank you for clarifying that for me so basically you know jack shit so yeah um but yeah, the inter- internet's an interesting place. So I just choose to like do my thing, s- follow my path, stay true to myself and my truth, and um, you know, still be a good student and still like you know be open and right. and listen to what right. other people have to say and try and engage them in a way that's like positive, right. and it, both of us can get something out of. But a lot of times, you know, that's not a reciprocated thing. I will I will give so I will extend objectivity. I basically meet people where they're at. If you come at me super hard and you're a cocksucker, I will meet you exactly right there and we will tangle and you will lose because I'm really good at it. At this point in the game, like two years in, I'm really good at shit talking on the internet. So like I've mastered the art of it. So I will meet you where you're at. If you're cool and you're like, Hey, I disagree with you. Here's why. Here's the things that I think. Here's the data that backs up my position on this. Like, here's where I pull my information from. Here's the sources. I'll, I'll take, I'll be objective and I will extend objectivity and I will take a look at what your you know perspective is. But right. If you have no, you know, no, nothing to no credible sources to support your position other than like some stupid scientific wild ass guessing that you've done, then I don't, I don't give a fuck.
1: I was talking with Eric Graves from soldier systems and uh, we were talking Eric about did, some, yeah. some of the comments that he yeah. gets on some of his posts. Oh God. He's, and
0: he, I've been on his, I've been, On his pages, for I like I check his his page almost every day, and so I've seen some of the
1: fucking craziness that goes on in his comments. It's absolutely bananas. And then he'll run across the guys who post that shit. Yeah, and Eric will be like, "You're that dude," and he'll kind of catch them flat-footed. And they're so like nice to him; Mm -hmm. they don't dig in and they don't engage with them. And I'm like, man, when you're face to face. You're not throwing these grenades at anybody and you're not you know, you're not trying to be an asshole and mm-hmm. you can't, don't have the cover of the internet. It's like you have to be a human being talking to another human being and it's a totally different game.
0: Yeah, I mean Mike Tyson has this great quote where he's like, I can tell all of you you've like been on social media too long and haven't got punched in the face for the shit talk. So or something to that effect. So and I agree <laughs> with him. Like my rule of thumb is like I will not say anything to anyone that I wouldn't say to their face. Yeah. So, exactly. if if I'm going hard at you, it's because I would say that to your face. And he's seen me, like, peel some faces off. Like, face-to-face. Like, I've been face-to-face with some humans, and I have no problem, like, telling them exactly what the fuck I think, just like I would anywhere yeah. else, you know? So, like, that's my rule of thumb. If I... I won't say anything to anyone that I wouldn't say to their face. So, if I'm coming hard at you, I will... If I'm saying it hard in social media, I will certainly say it hard to your face if I run into you.
1: So, you're not two-faced, is what you're saying. Yeah,
0: I'm just... I like authenticity, so... It's a good way to yeah. be. Yeah. So, here we are. Vegas. It's 2024. Can you believe how fast time goes by? No, I can't. Yeah.
1: My birthday is in 2 days, so. Oh,
0: Jesus. I know. Okay, well how how old are how old are you going to be?
1: I will be 55. Oh my on god. Saturday. Yeah. 55.
0: Okay, well you're doing st- you're still doing pretty good for 55. I see that you still you still got the hipster like Mr. Rogers' outfit going <laughs> on here. Like and you've been like that for since I've known you. Like, your style really Thank hasn't you. changed up a lot. Like, you've been doing, like, the Beastie Boy. Like, you look like you're straight out of a Beastie Boy video. <laughs> and you have, like, been like that since since I've known you, which has been, like, how long have we known each other? It's like 10. Well did this happen? 12? I think 10, you first 000? came by
1: our booth at Chacho. It was like, it must have been, like, 07? Yeah. 08? Yeah. Was it that long ago? Yeah, it was. Because we yeah. did all that shit in 11, mm-hmm. and then I knew you for years before that. Oh, yeah
0: yeah it was two thousand and seven, I think is yeah. when I first came to your booth and we struck up a uh, we had a
1: great conversation, yeah. yeah, you helped me pack the booth up. I was there we with did. like a couple of guys, and I had to pack all these boxes, mm-hmm. and I think it was either you and your brother and another yeah. buddy, yeah. and I was like, man, come on, let's go, yeah, yeah, we helped let's out. pack that shit up. I yeah. was like, dude, you're a pretty solid guy yeah for
0: i mean i've helped i helped uh since I've been in the industry like this is my twentieth year at the show. Surefire brought me here in o four um, because I just had good connects with that company. Like I was really good friends with Barry Duke, who's the director of suppressors over there. And like, he didn't obviously used to be that dude. He's, he used to work on the surefire Institute side and like do training is how he got started in the company. Somehow got he, and then, Oh, I, I think he was working for opsink suppressors too on the side. So he's doing training stuff with surefire and then was doing stuff with Opsync. And so I knew him like way back, like nineties, late nineties. Oh, wow. Um, and so, yeah, I got involved with them and had good connects to that company. And then, um,
1: yeah, your business card said surefire. I yeah, remember that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was consulting with them for like, that's what I did when I got off active duty, but I was still, I was kind of dabbling and doing a little bit of stuff with them, um, prior to me getting off active duty. So I was like working on the training side off duty from my Marine Corps time. I would, I would do, I'd go on the weekends and I would train, law enforcement uh, and military like seals from Coronado uh, for the Surefire Institute for a while through um, the founders of the Institute, which was uh, Dave Maynard. Um, the Institute had kind of like shifted and changed when I had come on to it. But Barry, he started the suppressor division. Um, I was doing stuff on with Surefire on the weekends, but uh, and that's why I learned a lot of like cool like CQB stuff that saved my life in combat. And um, I started teaching and, and um was heavily connected with Surefire for a long time, helped do a lot of development with them and and um that was kind of my first consulting gig getting off active duty. But I came here in oh four after my first deployment to Iraq. Right. You know, mixed it up in Iraq and you know, for more on that craziness you can check out the Rudy Reyes episode, like episode twenty five, I'll tell you how all that went down. But like, uh um yeah, lots of gunfights, killed some bad guys, came back with gunfighting experience and um used surefire products that saved my life and, yeah. and, uh, were effective. And, and so they were like, I came back and I gave a whole after action review with like, a, I put together a PowerPoint and came back and like briefed John Matthews, the owner and founder of surefire. And he was like, so stoked on it. He was like, you're coming to shot show with us. And I had no idea what shot Show was. I'm like, okay, I don't know what it is. And, uh, we, we keep, they, Brought me to the show, all expenses paid, paid for my travel, paid for my food, put me up in the Venetian. <laughs> you must have been in heaven as a young Yeah, I was and... like, dude, this is the shit. I love this. So, walked around the show, and then just like, those were my younger years. I think I was like 25 or 26, and we just burned it down. I mean, like, <laughs> all-nighters at the Spearmint Rhino, like, just going on full benders at the cry parties, like, doing... Doing all the crazy shit. And so then the way it worked out with, like, after I got off active duty, I was contracting. It was just always weird timing to where I'd either just gotten back from deployment or I was getting ready to leave after the show to go on deployment. But I was always here right. in January to come to the show. Right. So the only time I missed have missed a show is, you know, when they got shut down for COVID. Oh, wow. That's the only show That's I've missed. That's a good in record. The, yeah, in the last 20
1: years. So... So we do have to thank you because there was a story that you told me that was attached to what you're doing with Surefire that kind of inspired something that we did in the booth that was a little, I don't know, colorful maybe? Yeah. So you told us a story one time, and I'm hope, I'm not speaking out of turn no, or out of place. Go for it. <laughs> but you were telling us how you were uh, deployed with Surefire doing some stuff in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and you were waiting you got to the base and you're waiting for the unit to come back and uh choppers came back and two big operators came out of the hel- yeah. out of the helicopter and there was blood splatter all over their uniform yeah. and they were carrying like a a couple of uh 5 gallon or you know the you know the 5 gallon buckets that you'd get at a hardware store to yeah. you know mop the floors with and you looked down inside of it and it was like hands just severed hands Mm -hmm. and i remember that story i'm like man it just went in the back of my brain i'm like we gotta do something with that and in 2019 we launched a couple of like fun poppies of war totes and we were just just for fun and i went to a halloween store and i got (laughs) all of these like fake severed hands oh dude and i'm like this is the brian bishop uh dude yeah prop so we filled it we filled a couple of tote bags full of severed hands and we That's had them awesome. at Shacho. and people i remember watching them as they walked by like what the hell is this guy it. thinking man? i love it what has happened what is the story behind it? eric graves even looked at it and he's like like what the heck man And <laughs> yeah. i had to tell him the story and he's like all right whatever but yeah uh that def- that story definitely resonated with me when you told me that I was like yeah. wow that's pretty hardcore yeah
0: doing bda on targets and like having to get collect dna is a thing so that you can verify who was there and yeah. who wasn't there so yeah they they showed up i was like there to like work with them and and um liaise and do things and they uh showed up and off of fresh off the target right at sunrise and came walking up and i met their guys like fresh off fresh off of a target where they had to rush because the sun was coming up and they had to get the fuck out of Dodge. And so they had to take a quickie saw and like remove some hands to like, uh, get, get some, get the, get the fingerprints and get the DNA. And then I think they had to drop, they had to, they had to run casts on an alternate location that was, you know, adjacent to the main target building where they had to, dropped some bombs and so they went over there and there was chunks and pieces and they had to collect they had to collect some of that too and so they had to bring it back so that they could do the all of the uh all the forensic
1: DNA to figure out who, who was there and who wasn't. So Well that was another thing that kinda of blew my mind too when I found out what we were, you know, doing over there. I mean That's what I love about SHOT Show is that you meet some phenomenal people that have the most obscure jobs and and you learn things about our country and our government Mm -hmm. that you had no idea we were up to. And so this one guy was talking about, have you ever heard of genomic mapping? And I'm like, no, what's that? And he was Mm -hmm. like, well, you know when everybody in Afghanistan was voting and they got a little thumb prick? Yeah. It's like, well, guess what? We got the DNA right there, too. So Mm -hmm. we now have collected DNA for half of that country. So if there's ever something bad that goes goes wrong, you know, we can find out where mm-hmm. that person was, where the DNA is, go to that village and be like, hey, you're related to this guy. And I was like, I'm like, oh, my gosh. I'm like if they're doing that over there, is that happening over here? Where else oh, are we doing sure that is. shit? Like, Yeah, for sure it is. It was a little spooky.
0: Yeah, for sure it is. Like we used to do like this ISO prep cards or they would take our, our DNA, like we would have to like, same thing, blood sample and then thumbprints. And then like, I think we had to have like a verification phrase. And then there was like a, you know, there's photos of us and they like, they keep all that stuff in case we like, right. you know, they can't identify our body or they we get taken prisoner and they need to verify that it's us that's actually prisoner. Like they can do that right. in various ways. But like, yeah, nowadays it's like with smartphone technology, like, I mean, come on the, the fucking facial recognition software to just unlock your phone. Uh, Those records are stored someplace and you know, the government because of the Patriot acts got access to all that (laughs) shit. Like it was scary for me where like I coming back into the U S just this last trip from um, Australia, I walked up and uh, now they don't even have like, like you don't even have to talk to anybody unless they want to talk to you. Like I walked up they're like, yeah, stand on the footprints and they had this little camera and the, you know, the border control agent, you know, or the immigration agent was like sitting there and he like looks at the screen. And he looks at me and he goes, Brian Bishop. And it's just from a, ca- what the no cam- ID. Yeah, no he did, nothing. He didn't ask me for my ID. He didn't even look at my passport. He didn't even look at my passport. He just, he said, Hey, stand on those footprints. And I did. And he like the camera, like did the little light twinkled. And then he looked at me and he goes, Brian Bishop. And I was like, yeah. He goes, Oh yeah. Come on through.
1: So was that information collected when you got your driver's license or your passport? Is that the information that they had to back it up? Or? Fuck, I don't know.
0: I I don't know. I'm on my th- <laughs> I'm on my third
1: passport, and now they have these like little electronic strips.
0: Uh, going through immigration in Australia is pretty cool because they, you know, you're no longer like filling out these little fucking right, slips of paper right, anymore. Right. Like you're, you get there. You get off this like you have to go to a kiosk. They have all these kiosks. You scan, scan your. Have you been through it? Have you been through? And yeah, when I yeah travel internationally, how long? How long ago was this? Uh, a couple of years ago. Okay, well now like you just walk up and you put your passport in this thing and it scans it and then it kicks you out this little um, ticket and then you take the ticket and you take your passport and you go to this little gate and there's a camera and there's a little thing where you stick your ticket in. And it scans your ticket, and then it says, "Step on the footprints and look at the camera." And you do, and it like takes a picture of you, and then it like either opens the gate or it gives a red (laughs) X. And if it gives you a red X, because I've seen it happen a couple of times, um, and I saw people at the airport get a red X, and a border patrol or border control agent comes up, opens the gate, gets that person, and they go off to secondary or wherever wherever they go to get like further further screening. So. Yeah, but everything's like pretty much automated now, and I'm like, oh man, like it's it's just crazy what technology's doing, and like, I mean, they have all all of our biometric. D- a- Apple has if you have an iPhone, you Apple has all your biometric data because you you used to be able to open your thumb with a thumbprint. Right. So they have your thumbprint, and, and they now rec- they have your facial
1: right. recognition. Yeah, but they don't sell that or do They'll anything the with fuck that info. ever. They give that shit to the FBI, no problem. <laughs>
0: all of our data gets sold. All of our data gets sold in mind. Like I just watched this um, friend of mine just turned me onto this this uh, documentary called 2000, 2000 Mules. Have you seen it?
1: Uh, I've heard about it. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, though. it's actually really
0: eye-opening. So, and for a couple of reasons, like one, you know, like I think everybody did a good job like sweeping the election fraud underneath the fucking, from the last election, underneath the carpet. And, you know, even me to a certain extent, I was like, well, if it didn't, if none of these cases like made it that like none of these lawsuits made it through court, then maybe it was bullshit. Right. So I like kind of backed off my, I had a real strong position on it at first. Cause I, I watched CCT camera footage of like trucks pulling up to polling stations, box trucks, opening boxes of ballots getting thrown out, you know, the roller door on the backside of the, you know, polling station getting open, people pulling those boxes. in. like, I saw that video footage on, on TV. So I was like, Oh, well fuck, there's the evidence right there. But then right. none of these lawsuits were successful. So I was like, Oh, maybe that was bullshit. And, uh, so I backed off of it, but then I watched this documentary where there was this company called, um, true the vote. Okay. And they, the guy, it's funny. Cause he's like this bearded dude. And they're like, Oh, he's a election, um, analytics, prof- professional, um, uh, Whatever the fuck he was. Like analytics. He's an election analytics professional or something like what that. What does that dude. job do? Whatever. He's an NSA dude. Because <laughs> they magically like went. I mean, that's my theory. I don't have any proof of that internet. But I think that that's my. Th- like I've been in this community a lot. I know people. And I think that he was an NSA guy. Because they. What they did is they went to a company. That collects all of our data off our phones. And they collected all of this data. And then they did this. Like they, they got a petabyte of data. What's that? How many It's um, like a thousand terabytes or something like that. It's some ridiculous amount of fucking data. He basic they basically did this like um they set up these parameters for their um to study the analytics because what they had was like cell phone traffic and they had IP uh you know the IP address and they had the IMI IMEI codes on these phones. So they could identify who the person is, right, what their IP address is, and then they could track the the phone activity right over this data. Right. And what they, they set these parameters for like, if a person visited these specific nonprofits that were in the area and then went to over 10 different, um, drop ballot, drop boxes, then they would ping and they would get put into a list. And they found in all of the battleground ground States, um, under those specific parameters, they found 2000 people had gone to several, uh, nonprofits that were, you know, uh, Democrat affiliated and then went to different drop boxes. So then once they went to over 10. So my question is like, okay, you're a person you go to vote. Why are you going to a drop box more than, more than once? Right. So they were going 10 times. And so they then pulled the camera footage and they found these same people going back to these drop boxes over and over again and just cramming ballots. They have video footage of it and it's all in this documentary. And I'm just like, Oh my fuck. It's crazy. So I'm like, yep election, massive election fraud. And then they ran all of the numbers based off the amount of trips that these people did. Did they
1: ask them like, okay, who is this person? And what's the wad that you're shoving in there? Or are you are like, did they actually get that individual?
0: Yeah. So those individuals have been like notified by law enforcement that they were in fact, like, can't do that. Don't do that again or
1: else. Um, that's but, the mule part of yeah, the 2000 you know, mules. Yeah.
0: So it, it, yeah, that's what they call these people as mules that are going to these. Yeah places and harvesting these ballots and then taking them and like shoving 10 or 20 at a time or a hundred at a time in these ballot boxes. Yeah. So they crunched all the numbers and they found that like in the two biggest battlegrounds Georgia and Philadelphia, Philadelphia had the largest number of them with 1100 mules in one area. Oh, and they crunched all of the numbers um, that they had with like ballots. And they were like, yeah, it swayed the election. Interesting, interesting. So they released all of that data, and uh, it was really interesting. So what was shocking to me, I I mean...
1: And that changed your
0: whole view of that? Yeah, I mean, it didn't change it. It just kind of reinforced where I was originally. But I backed off of it because I'm like, oh, well, lawsuits didn't happen. Maybe it's bullshit. I don't know. I don't have any proof. I've got better things to do than fucking worry about this shit. Now, after watching that documentary, I'm like, oh, shit, that's not great. So
1: yeah I wonder I mean did COVID forever change the way we vote? I mean it's so easy. I mean, everybody gets a paper ballot now. I mean, I'm on a list now, and they send me a paper ballot i don't in the mail. I don't have to go to a polling place. I kind of want to go to a polling place, but you know, a month before the election, I get this thing in the mail, and it's so easy. I just take it put it in the mailbox I'm done like you know, do they even so, count my ballot Is so it, like I, I don't know what happens.
0: I don't have a problem with that. But I want more accountability. Like, I think, yes, if you want to vote from home, cool, send you a ballot, you fill it out. But then I think there should be, like, some type of app that's attached to your phone and maybe a QR code on your ballot where you have to, like, scan it and com- and confirm in some database, like, hey, I received my ballot, hey, I'm voting. And yeah. then when you go to a Dropbox, it's not a Dropbox that you can just open, like, a mailbox, and shove shit into. It's an ATM like style machine. Oh, I didn't know that. Where you go and you like stick your ID in it. It scans your ID, takes a picture of you, stamp, does a date and time stamp, and then takes your ballot like a fucking deposit in an ATM machine.
1: Wait, this is the current way we no, do it, or that's this is the, the way, way we should do that's it? the way we should do it. Because right now it is the mailbox. Yeah, because right now it's the mailbox, and there's no accountability. Correct. There's no double check. Yep. Yeah, it is a little loosey goosey. Yeah, and it is you a little loosey goosey. If you
0: don't have an ID, a valid ID. Like to scan and get verified, you can't just shove ballots into a box. Right. So, you know, the fact that you have to have an ID to like drive a car, open a bank account, do all this other shit, but you don't have to have an ID to vote. Give me a fucking break.
1: Yeah, I'm two minds of that one too, man. It's like I don't think the Constitution says you need a driver's license to vote, right? Mm-hmm. So, well, then how do you how do you safeguard the election? <laughs> that's the, that's what I'm two minds of. It's like okay, mm-hmm. I get it, but you know, how do you, how do you square that? Right. Mm-hmm. Cause there's definitely an argument on both sides. It's like, I don't want to have an ID. It's my right. It's not, I don't need an ID. And I'm, I'm not driving. I'm mm-hmm. not taking an airplane. I don't need it, but I need to, I can still vote. It's my right as an American to vote. So yeah. How do you square it? I don't know, man, but something's got to change. So I think yeah. there's so much now with social media, and what's happening on both sides, there's so much distrust out there. It's like, how do you bring the trust back? There has to be some place we can meet as a country where, you know, both sides feel more comfortable. You know, obviously the winning side, you know, they're like, no, it's not broken. Don't fix it. Right. But, that's what they're always, that's what the winning side, no matter how, who it is, is always going to say that. Yeah, so. of course. So that's why, you know, there has to be something that we do as a country that, and I think, yeah, the idea is an interesting one. I think there's definitely something to be said for it.
0: No, I think it's, it's, I mean, our, I think our way of life is heavily predicated upon reinstalling confidence in the voting process. Like, do we really have a democracy if it's going to get fucked with like that? And like, people are able to manipulate it like that. It's, I mean, it's, do, are we really free? Are we really free? Is it really a constitutional republic if it's not functioning like that because it's being bought and sold? I would say no. So I think the number one challenge going into this election, because I think it's a, I think it's a super contentious. I think it's going to be the most contentious election of in our history, and I think that it's got potential for all hell to break loose, no matter which way it goes. So it's going to be interesting to see. Like history is definitely going to get made this year
1: in November, and I'm like, fucking hold on tight. So you know, do you ever do you watch Seinfeld at all? Yeah, you yeah, know, I used like to watch George, Seinfeld, George Seinfeld. Costanza's yeah. dad. Do you yeah. ever remember that episode where they're like, "Serenity now, Yeah. Serenity now"? <laughs> yeah. We need a little uh, Serenity now, man. Yeah, George Costanza's dad. Mm-hmm. He's the best. Yeah, Seinfeld was a great show. Best,
0: loved it's it. A great show. So we didn't introduce you properly. So you want to you want to tell everybody who you are? I mean, yeah. we, just, we just went right into it. So let's just back up. Oh, we one started scene. this thing already. Yeah, Holy you, shit! I yeah. had
1: no idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah, man. I'm Todd Fairbairn. I'm the founder of Audi Gear mm-hmm. which is a um tactical lifestyle brand. Yeah, that's a good way to that's a that's a great marketing was,
0: talking point. I, I was like,
1: like like how do I describe it? I'm like we are tactical, mm-hmm. yet we have a sense of humor and we have style. So I'm like, well we're kind of lifestyle, so Yeah. we're not all business, we're a little bit of pleasure. Mm-hmm. We kind of meet. We have a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. We've got some style. You know, we're definitely very design driven. We want cool shit. We want stuff to look good, fit well. And, you know, we like to have fun. Yeah. I would say that's an accurate depiction of the brand. So, yeah. And we like, it's an adventure, man. It's like. And this is, in fact, your first podcast, correct?
0: This is. Yeah. This is my first. How do you feel like, how do you feel like you're doing so far?
1: Oh, it's great, man. Okay. Just like chatting to an old friend. Yeah, you're doing good.
0: All right. Some people are awkward and it takes them 15, 20 minutes to like loosen up and. Oh Get really? So, yeah, yeah. Some people are super <laughs> awkward. You're, you're doing great. Good job. Nice. So, yeah, let's talk about the Audi Gear Legacy, and then we'll t- we'll tell some like origin story of like how how you and I ran across each other, and then like all the things that happened after that. And
1: yeah, what yeah. do you want to know? Like, uh...
0: so how did like what was the because I know you were doing you were like an outdoor you were an outside out. Like so, like you had your own rep firm for yeah. outdoor. Oh community yeah, because you were yeah. a big outdoorsman. Like you used you big climber, alpinist. Right. You did some. You did a through hike of the Appalachian Trail. I
1: did. I just had my thirtieth anniversary this past year. Oh wow! Can't believe it's been thirty years. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that was nuts. Mm-hmm. That was a. Did great you do time. anything for that or no? I did. I um two actually one guy at the shot show. Um, we met on the Appalachian Trail and we did a reunion hike Mm -hmm. we got together we got together 20 years and we hiked part of maine in the hundred mile wilderness and we finished in katahdin Mm -hmm. he was going through a divorce at the time it was very cathartic for him um and there was another guy that was with us he actually finished what they call the triple crown he just finished in montana the continental divide trail so he actually missed our reunion hike which kind of pissed me off but you know he had a good excuse But, um, so triple crown, that means he's done the through hike to the
0: entire Appalachian trail through hike, the entire Pacific crest trail. That's right. And then
1: finished with the continental divide trail. Isn't that one the hardest? That one's definitely the hardest. There's no maps on some parts of that shit. It's the longest. It's like 3,100 miles, Mexico to Canada. I mean, I remember him calling me at the border of Wyoming and Montana and saying, Hey dude, I got to get home for a job in 30 days. We were gonna link up in Montana and hike some of you know the wilderness areas up there, but for it was like a job for him. He's like, bro, I just did the math. I got to do 28 miles a day for 30 days straight, no days off. He was waking up and hiking in the dark, and he was hiking till after dark, and it was like that for 30 days. And I'm like, I want no part of that, man. That sounds absolutely awful.
0: Yeah, I mean. If you're going to chase some lofty goals like that, great. But, like, I feel like you should enjoy them a bit. It shouldn't be, like, a fucking suffer fest, I don't think.
1: Dude, it's a job. I mean, the AT was a job at one point, too, man. You're, like, you know, four or five months in, and you still have another month of this thing. It's like, you know, you wake up. It's like going to work. You put your boots on. Put on wet socks, wet shirt. It's cold. Pack your sleeping bag down. Break down a wet tent start slogging and then you know if you're lucky it's warm you can lay your stuff out at lunchtime try it out pack it back up so at least at nighttime, when you go back into your fart sack it's dry mm-hmm. um uh and uh sorry my alarm's going off um it's gonna go off again uh b- but the uh yeah it was a grind at the end it was a grind and i was like man i'm glad this is over mm-hmm. i got sick at the end i was like the 100-mile wilderness is the last little stretch of trail you have to do before you hit Mount Katahdin, which is the end. And some of these old through-hikers were kind of paying it forward, and they were setting up feed camps in there, and they'd feed you. And I got there a little bit too late, so they left, but they left some, like, canned food, like sauerkraut, and some other shitty stuff that no one wanted to eat. And I remember getting in, and I woofed it down, and I don't know, something was, like, off, because, man, I was, like, shitting like nobody's yeah. business man. And if well, you've if ever gone camping and you've had to go to the bathroom and you're like fumbling in the dark trying yeah. to get op- out of a tent fly in the middle of the night while yeah, you're about to explode. It's not fun. No. Yeah. It's not fun.
0: So, how old were you when you did that? i
1: was 24. Yeah. Yeah. I just um finished my infantry officer basic course at Fort Benning at the time and um It was the beginning of April, and that was right when the Army was starting to shrink, and they just didn't need a lot of young lieutenants. And so they're basically like, Lieutenant, if we need you, we'll call you. And so they put me on the individual ready reserve. So they cut me loose. And so another buddy of mine who was in a similar position, we just threw everything in our rucksacks, and we just drove three miles north to Dahlonega, which is the— actually ranger school mountain phase phase and we actually ran across a lot of the you know Mm -hmm. areas that the rangers had torn up and left shit everywhere but um yeah we went up there another buddy of us dropped us off and and started hiking just started heading north started heading north and how, how many days did it take you 188 okay wow six months and eight days yeah that's a lot dude it was a
0: lot that's awesome though Uh, Yeah. That's awesome. I bet you it was an amazing
1: experience. You know, I thought it was going to be this huge wilderness experience. Mm -hmm. You know, I was going to get to know myself and, you know, figure out what I wanted to do with my life as a 24-year-old. And I got on that thing, and the dudes that I met and the chicks were epic individuals, man. Like, every walk of life, you know, from blue-collar, like, firemen from Boston to, like, you know, executives that had just retired from ibm and you know veterans and you know total stoners and guys that you definitely think had broken out of prison and were hiking there i mean it ran the gamut and the great thing about it is nobody knew each other before so you could kind of reinvent yourself Mm -hmm. or at least be really authentic yeah to use your word from er earlier in the podcast and it was unbelievable And you could just be, so, it was so liberating. And you get a trail name. And so my trail name was Chow Hound because I like to chow down. Mm-hmm. And when I started the trail, we couldn't find a food bag big enough for all my food. So my buddy pulled the pillowcase off of my bed at in the at the building in, in Fort Benning. And we threw everything into this basically a pillowcase. That was my food bag. <laughs> and it was before I knew what the fuck I was doing. Mm-hmm. So half of it was canned. So I must have had about 35 pounds oh, man. of canned food for two weeks. I thought I wasn't going to resupply for two weeks. I had no idea what I was doing. So when I started, my pack weighed 86 pounds. Oh God! And Just being a dumb, you know, infantry lieutenant, I didn't think about that I was carrying so much fucking weight because I'd just mm-hmm. been carrying all this shit for IOBC. So yeah. you know, I had an extra pair of boots and like all sorts of stupid stuff and. Um, the guys on the trail squared me away, man. They they, they slowly but surely molded me mm-hmm. into you know a long distance hiker. Got nice. rid of the shit you didn't need. Yep. Told you how to use your stove right, your Thermarest, and yeah, it was pretty cool. I learned everything on the fly. I Had no idea how to use any of that shit. It was awesome. So you wrapped up the A trail, and then what did you then? What, then what was next? After that experience, I'm like, man, I don't want to sit down and write a desk for my whole life. I did have a job back in Boston working for um Enterprise Rent-a-Car actually. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of an interesting experience too. But I knew I wanted to keep the party going, but I was out of money. Right. So I'm like fuck it, I'm going to get the I'm going to go back to this job with Enterprise Rent-a-Car and I did and I saved my money for another year and then I popped smoke and I bought a round the world ticket and I left Boston, flew first to San Fran, hung out with my sister for a couple of days. Oh, Mary was living in San Francisco then? Mary was doing the San Fran hippy-dippy I didn't dippy know thing. she was a hippie. I love that about yeah, her. Yeah, it was great. Well, she wasn't really hippy-dippy. She had a corporate job out there. Oh, it was she? pretty good. But um, hung out with her for a few days and then flew to, to see an old boss of mine in Hawaii mm-hmm. and then um, flew to New Zealand. And just started the adventure down there and, you know, climbing and skiing and hiking all over New Zealand. I thought I was only going to spend like two weeks there. I ended up spending three months there.
0: I've heard that it's
1: easy to do there. I've heard that New Zealand's absolutely Dude, it is epic. It's like going back to America in the 1950s, man. Like I hitchhiked everywhere. Mm -hmm. People love talking to Americans. I mean, it's so small town. I mean, the whole country back then had three and a half million people. And most of them are on the North Island and like, you know, all the mountains and stuff is in the South Island. All the really super cool stuff is down there and there's nobody living down there. And, um, you know, I can remember hitchhiking and getting picked up by these Kiwi farmers and just they invite me back to their house. They wouldn't even know me. They drive me around. We drink beers together and it was just like a great time. And, you know, I think they're a little bit isolated being in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So having, like, somebody interesting and different be there, they were, like, totally into, like, who's this American? What's he about? Like, let me hear a little bit about him. So that was pretty cool. And then Australia after that. And then I ran out of money. I picked fruit for a while. That was kind of an interesting experience. Where,
0: you picked fruit in Australia? Or what Actually,
1: you- I picked it in New Zealand. Okay. And uh, cherries and apricots for like two weeks. So you went to New Zealand. Yeah. Then you went to Australia. Yeah.
0: What did you do while you were in Australia?
1: Oh, man, learned to surf, scuba dive. Where did you spend the most time at? Uh, definitely, I flew into Sydney, hung out there for a while, flew to Tasmania because it was turning into their oh, winter yeah. and Tas- I wanted to get down there. Yeah. So I flew down there. I did a bunch of the epic treks down there. How is that? I'm dying to get down to Tasmania. Tasmania, Tasmania was like New Zealand, mm-hmm. but with animals. Okay. So like New Zealand, for those who don't know, they don't have any native mammals besides seals and bats. Oh, wow. Anything else was introduced there. They have a lot of deer and other, you know, stuff, but that was all stuff, Europe, you know, animals Europeans brought. Oh, no kidding. Back when they, um, the pioneers went down there mm. 200 years ago. And Australia, though, they have tons of stuff, kangaroos, wombats. Yeah. So they had a lot of critters down there, which was kind of cool. Um, so that was amazing. And then my dad, he was living vicariously through me. He's like, dude, I'm meeting you in Sydney and we're going to go scuba diving up in the Great Barrier Reef. And so I'm like, I'm in, man, let's go. And so we flew up to Cairns, Australia and, um, spent a week up there. I took a scuba course and then he and I went on a boat for like five days and we were like scuba diving the reef. And My dad, you know, he's, he's like a funny dude. And, um, you know, at the time, obviously he was in his fifties, and he's a little overweight, fat American guy. But he loves his like speedo briefs, and I remember like he embarrassed the shit out of me, man. He was like strutting around the boat wearing his speedo, and there's all these young like you know backpacker chicks in their twenties that they, I'm hanging out yeah, with. And, they've they've seen all that down in Australia, like that's a way of life down there.
0: They call them budgies or budgie smugglers down there.
1: <laughs> man, my dad was a super bungee smug bungee smuggler. Man, he was like loving it too, like. Yeah. Like waving his, you know, his yep. banana hammock around everywhere, <laughs> man. He loved it. And so you guys did some diving on the Great Barrier Reef. We did diving in the Great Barrier Reef, and um, and then he flew back to uh, Sydney, and that's when he like linked up with the whole branch of our family that had moved there. Oh wow! Yeah, from um, my great grandmother had died in childbirth. My great great grandmother had died in childbirth. She sent her the her daughter basically was sent to America to Texas and was brought up by nuns and her father basically was like, okay, my wife just died. Mm -hmm. I'm not taking care of the kid. The kid's going to America. It's like I'm leaving Ireland and I'm going to New Zealand or to Australia. And so he moved, immigrated over there, became, it was a tailor and then the whole side of the family down there that I had no idea about. Oh wow. Yeah. it's crazy. What was awesome. even crazier is fast forward the story a little bit. I end up going back to Sydney. My dad goes through the phone book, looking up all the wards in the phone book, like all the jam wards. And the fifth one finally hits pay dirt and is like, Hey, are you John Ward? Was your mother so and so, so and so? Did you just live in this? It's like, Yeah, who the hell is this? And it's like, Hey, man, I'm your cousin. And I go to this house and, uh, the guy pulls out a picture of me as an infant with my cousin sitting on my grandfather's lap. Oh wow! This total stranger had a picture of me, which was a little trippy. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, it was wild. He was an attorney down there, and I was trying to meet the kids that were my generation, but we never linked up. But it was just kind of cool to see, you know, the Irish diaspora spread all over the world. You know? Yeah, yeah, as they do. Yeah. Did you? So, do you still get down to
0: Australia at all, or no?
1: No, I mean that was now it's not like driving to new jersey or something like that. no it's It's like it's a plane ride man oh yeah it's a commitment yeah it's a commitment it's a multi-day
0: commitment yeah yeah it took me 27 hours to get home this last trip Uh, i got i flew into i flew about 14 i flew 14 hours from sydney to lax but then of course when i landed at first thing in the morning there was no flights going to montana because i keep my stuff i keep my truck at my buddy's house in montana so like there was no there was no way for me to get to montana any sooner than like 3 p.m or something like that so i had to spend seven hours (laughs) in the airport and then (laughs) fucking delta in their their infinite wisdom i'm like it's cool i'll hit the delta lounge i'll just hang out no no delta like you used to be able to get into the delta lounge one of two ways one either you're an american express platinum card holder or two you just pay 125 bucks. And I think at one point oh, it was that much it well, it used to be, well, it went up even more. Like I remember one point in time it was like 175 bucks, but I had this like wild, like 10 hour layover at an Ooh. airport. And I was just like, I don't want to deal with humans. I yeah. want quiet. I want food. I throw wanted, down. I want some comfortable seating. So yeah. I just like paid the money and it was great. But now they've changed it to where you cannot get in unless you are a platinum card holder.
1: Period. Yeah. They won't let you in. <laughs> you it, you can't pay cash. You nope. can't, no. They won't No, you pay
0: cash and then no more, no more paying cash. You nope. just have to be yeah. a card holder. So yeah, I couldn't. So I'm like, oh, so did you good. become American
1: express premium nope. card
0: holder after that? No. Fuck them. <laughs> so I went, uh, I went upstairs and just found, uh, a, some, a little lounger and just hung out up there for seven hours and did work. I, I napped for a while and then did some work on my computer and then, and then just hung out, got some, got a bite to eat and then got on a flight. And then, so then I flew, LA to Salt Lake, two hour layover in Salt Lake, then flew uh Salt Lake to Montana. Oh man. And it was it was long. So it was like twenty it was twenty seven hours door to door. Oh yeah, so it was it was a it was a trip for sure. So yeah, it is a commitment. It's a certainly a commitment. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. but love, man. I love I yeah, I that's what you'll do for love. Yeah, you know, my girl's fucking awesome. And um Australia's awesome. The people there are awesome. I love Australia. Yeah. Super cordial amazing coffee Cato and i like talk about their coffee like all like the coffee there i mean just coffee in general internationally like he just came back from europe and he's like our coffee is trash it, what? It, it, how it hard is
1: it is. to make good coffee man. i'm like what are the europeans and the australians doing that we can't replicate it i don't or know. or is it just your mindset when you travel is different so no. you only think it tastes better? No,
0: no. I'm a coffee aficionado. Like I fucking love coffee. Like I apps. Like I nerd out on coffee. Like we've been going down. Like I have my own like little pour over set up on the truck. So we've been doing like tailgate. We've been tailgating every morning where we go down. I'll get out my little stove, boil the water, hand grind my beans, <laughs> and like we'll do a tailgate pour over every morning before we go into the show
1: in the parking yeah, in, in the parking garage. Yeah, yeah, right here in the parking lot. Oh my right gosh. Yeah dude
0: yeah because i fucking can't stand the coffee here although i was jonesing so bad for coffee today but we fucked up we we were in a hurry we're trying to get to the podcast with uh todd um todd hodnett who we interviewed today great dude and um there's a really good what's that cafe called Illy. Yeah, they, have re- they do have good coffee there. But that's Italian, right? Yeah, and we blew by it because I'm a fucking idiot. And we were trying to get to the elevator to link up with Todd's son, Colby, and like, ended up getting Starbucks. And then on the way back out, we were like, fuck, we're dumb. We should have stopped there at Illy and got, got coffee. So we'll do that. We'll stop at Illy tomorrow.
1: But now, when, you, when you're on the road like that and you're going to pay for it like is there a dollar amount that gets to be too expensive where you're like, that's just fucking insulting? And i'm the uh, I'll preface it by saying I was just in the Adirondacks last weekend, mm-hmm. and you know it's the Adirondacks. it's mm-hmm. not like New York City or l a so I was expecting to get a reasonably you know priced cup of coffee. so after skiing, mm-hmm. I went into this little hipster joint in not a fancy town at all, and um in Keene Valley and dude, it was seven dollars and two cents and I'm like, what? I mean granted it was a large coffee, but I'm like, okay did I look like a sucker or is that legitimately what it costs now? I mean, and that wasn't, you know, maybe they included the tip. I don't know, but that kind of was like, all right, that's pushing my buttons a little yeah,
0: bit. no, I, I agree with that. I think that is steep for a cup of coffee. Um, the, I mean, yeah, it, in Australia, I can get a a long black as they call it, um, which is basically just like a americano. Yeah, or, it's a black coffee. Yeah. Um, it's, like four dollars for a large, and it's so like the, with the conversion rate, it's like three bucks less, two seventy-five for a fucking cup of coffee. If yeah, that's reasonable, right? Yeah, and it's good, and the coffee is amazing. So that's why, yeah, I, yeah I'm completely on yeah. board with you. We're yeah. getting we're getting hosed over here on a few things with like regard to services provisions, but <laughs> the uh, yeah, I, I absolutely love international travel, and Australia is amazing. It's our they're competing with Canada for like our. Second place, and I I stoke the fire because I do this thing on the podcast where I do the like the top ten on Weapons Free Wednesday, which is our Wednesday segment where I like rant or we'll answer, we'll do questions, and sometimes I do top ten where I'll get into our analytics and I'll like go over the top ten country like the, the top ten countries out of ninety that are downloading like in competition for the most downloads, and oh, so right, right now like. Yeah, Australia and uh, Canada are, like, fighting hard for second place. <laughs> like, right now, they're only, I think, like, 600 downloads apart.
1: Now, how do you capture those guys? I mean, you're an American. I mean, granted, you're we're next to Canada, and yeah. you're dating an Australian. Yeah. So, how do you get the word out in the street from those two countries?
0: I don't know. Like, I picked up a lot of, like, international momentum just from being on Cleared Ha with Andy. Ah. Uh, um, and co-hosting Full Auto Friday with him. But um, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I, I continued that momentum by, um, t- engaging with people on social media. Lots of Australians started DMing me. I started talking to them. Like I, I try to do a good d- job with talking to my fans and like engaging with them. You
1: I know, mean, these guys that served with Americans in Iraq and some Afghanistan, or are these yeah, like civilians that c- are civilians. just kind of curious? A lot of
0: them are civilians, but if there's a few that, yeah, were had served in, in the GWAT with us. But, uh, that's global war on terror for folks that don't know. Um do people not know what that is? They now? don't know. People are like, What's GWAT? Uh, and like the GWAT, the global war on terror. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's a lot of you people. You know you're
1: getting old when you have to explain the acronyms.
0: Yeah, yeah well I mean it was it was a twenty year long ordeal and And what's crazy to me too is like as much as I love Australia, um, and the people are cordial, the food's great and it's amazing there they have zero sense of like national identity or patriotism and they have like zero sense of like veteran service shit like they have like like anzac day is coming up i think it's april 25th
1: that's like our veterans day
0: yeah and then i think they do something else yeah it's like our veterans day but like if you go to like their memorials there's still like ve- like anzac day is about a battle that happened in world war 1 oh right 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 and I'm like hey cool like good on the veterans from World War I that like whipped it on and kicked some German ass but like World War II is a thing and Australians served in that right Vietnam was a fucking thing and they yeah. augmented us and served in that and Korea then, and too. Korea yeah and then like I'm like okay like the global war on terror that we were partners in just like they were side by side with us through that like comb- combating terrorism in, in Iraq and Afghanistan and like you see hardly any global war on terror,
1: like, recognition at all. So they're embarrassed about it? Are they trying to, like, f- I don't think know. it, like, I it'll just go away? Yeah, I just, like
0: I just think the demographic is so small because you're talking about a country where they're, like, 80% s- the same landmass as us, which I didn't even know this. I thought Australia was, like, for whatever reason in my stupid mind, I thought Australia was smaller. They're about they're, the same size. They're nearly the same size as us landmass-wise. Right, right but they have a 12th of our population. Like they only have like 26 million people. So nearly the same land mass with 26 million people. Oh my gosh. So you've got like a super decreased population. Yeah. So when you're talking about a population density that, that is that much less than us, then like how big is the ADF, you know, the yeah. Australian defense force. And like out of those people, like how many serve in a combat arms role? And out right. of those people, how many actually had bullets fly past them? So there's like three people, right? It's like 16 dudes. <laughs> 16 dudes in the whole country. Um no, obviously being facetious, but you know, yeah, two commando and SAS and all of the Australian infantry regiments. And then there was also some Kiwis too that served with us. Like I I met some Kiwis on a mission that we did in Bamiyan province and and um they escorted us and and um uh great dudes too. Kiwis are great dudes too, but like yeah, it's just a it's just a weird thing that they have
1: over there that I've noticed where they just patriotism isn't really a thing no. and no nope. like love of country mm-hmm. and
0: no they're very they're getting very you know and to my australian people that are you know listening to this i love all of you and this is my stupid dumb fuck american opinion so just bear with me but um they're being super apologetic about like all of the indigenous like you uh, know, aboriginal yeah. you know like oh, we took your land and we honor your elders and like Like, okay, cool. I get that to a certain extent, but, like, you know, it's kind of the shit that, like, goes on here where we're, like, people still expect reparations from slavery. Yeah. You know? And I'm, like, it's a historical thing that happened. I think we can all agree that, like, it wasn't the best thing that happened, but it was our history, and we can all, like, stop sitting around lamenting over these things and maybe just, like, be better humans altogether and, like, maybe do a better job. Now, like, I think that, because I don't think that the aboriginals are very like, I don't think they're allowed to serve in parliament right now or something like that. Or they, I could be wrong about that. Maybe there are (laughs) parliamentarians
1: Wait, what? Because they are aboriginal. Yeah.
0: Or, or they're not, there's not a lot of them that are actually elected representatives. And so I think that's a thing and they're working on that, but like, right. They're just, they're, they're starting to get so apologetic about things that it's just, it's creating like, and I, might sound like a fucking idiot for saying this but like because racism is racism no matter what but it's creating kind of this like reverse racism like it is here you know right. where you've got like you know black people that want to be anti-racism and talk about systemic racism by being racist and hating white people right. so you're kind of starting to see the same thing unfold in australia right. and it's starting to piss a lot of people off and create some yeah not so good social yeah metrics there so yeah it's interesting and you know my Australian listeners, I'm neutral on this topic. I'm just talking from my stupid American perspective. You I mean being a guest in your country, but like these are the things that I kinda look at and I'm like, what the fuck is, you know,
1: this all about? So Yeah, it's interesting as an American and as an outsider and you're coming into a culture and you're looking at it from the outside, looking in, mm-hmm. you can have a different perspective. Yeah. And, you know, you can ask the questions that they might not even know that mm-hmm. need to be asked, you know, especially right. when it comes to this.
0: Yeah. So my thing is like, okay, maybe Maybe we quit, quit looking in the past and being fucking whiners and we look in the present and we figure out how to like work together and solve problems and like be good humans to each other in the present moment. Right. So, yeah. but
1: Yeah, but the past pa- happened. Yeah. The past don't, happened. You don't got erase your, it. Yeah. Don't, don't erase like,
0: it. Don't change it. You got your fucking ass kicked and you got your island taken by white people. Right. Okay. That happened. Right. Okay. Right. Cool. Now let's maybe be good humans to each other right now. Right. And if we need to put some, you know, some people in you know give the some people the opportunity to get elected and be in parliament and represent their demographic to, probably should do that right but uh, yeah i just i get tired of the fucking whining you know even here in this country like yeah. the whole whining about shit like you're not special shut the fuck up like yeah. stop trying to change our history stop trying to like um change it to you, what you think how history should have gone and how how sorry we should be for these th- like fuck you yeah you lost <laughs> you fucking lost. Like, you know, it's like it reminds me of like the Super Bowl when the opposing, you know, the fans from the other team like yeah. get a case of the fucking shits about losing the game and right. act like assholes and right. go flip over cars and fucking loot and break windows out and stuff and I'm just like, "No, you you guys lost."
1: It is a little weird because my son, I have a son who is a freshman right now in college mm-hmm. and As we toured a bunch of different schools, a lot of times they begin the tour by saying we like to acknowledge the fact that we're on Lenape land or Mm -hmm. whatever tribe happens to be in that area. And I'm like, okay, what's the acknowledgement about? Like, Mm -hmm. okay, we stole the land, we, you know. Right. You lost. Killed off as many Native Americans as we possibly could. I'm like. Where are you going with this, man? Are you going to uh-huh. give the school property back to the Indians? Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, you know, bro, you
0: lost. <laughs> Sorry, you can't. You can't get that Super Bowl trophy if you
1: whine really hard about it. Like,
0: give us the trophy because we deserve it. We were the champions last year. You beat us.
1: Yeah. I mean, no, fuck you. You lost. It is a little bit weird. I don't know if I'm getting old when the, that kind of stuff like rubs me, starts to rub me a little wrong or I what? Yeah, I guess we're just getting old. When Crotchety we're like, yeah. or like the old guy th- yeah. like raising his fist and shaking it in the air. Yeah,
0: my favorite thing. Abe to do. Simpson style. Yeah. I mean, yes. Gen X is a thing. And so, like, are you Gen X? Yeah, I'm Gen X. Oh, man, me too. Yeah. Yeah. And so now, like, I've been, I've been like, you know how like the the millennials were like always their thing was like, okay, boomer. You know, like my thing now is like, okay, Zoomer, you know, for the Gen Z <laughs> fucking idiots doing dumb shit. Oh my gosh. So, okay, well you were working at Enterprise and then you, at what point did you become a rep, an outdoor, like, cause you started your own rep group. So, yeah. who, so back into like who you worked for in the outdoor space, Sure. because you did these adventures in New Zealand and Australia, then you obviously had to come home.
1: Yeah. So I ran out of money. Yeah, <laughs> as I, you will when you're out adventuring. And, and out. I was, I still wanted to keep it going. So I'm like, man, I got a gold card. I got a $5,000 limit on this mm-hmm. bad boy. I'm like, I'm not ready to go home. So I kept charging, and I had this round-the-world ticket. Mm-hmm. And so I was going to go from Sydney to Bangkok, Bangkok to like Athens, Athens, London, London, New York. And that was the end of the trip. And I'm like, fuck it, man. So I took it, and I said... Let me go, let me let me go to Bangkok. So I did, mm-hmm. and then I was like, "Dude, I gotta go to Vietnam." And this was 1995, and we had just normalized relationship with Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Like Warren Christopher, the Secretary of State under Clinton, had just normalized it. I'm like, "I'm going, man." Flew over to Saigon, and dude, talk about like crazy time, man. It was <laughs> like it was nuts, man. Mm-hmm. There was like. You know, Americans were just starting to go over there. There wasn't many. The war was like literally just 20 years before. And so I went over there and it was so poor Mm -hmm. and like unstructured. They haven't seen too many white dudes. There's definitely no Americans over there. And I spent a month. I got on a motorcycle and I toured around and Did just having, coast? having a look around i went down to the mekong delta i went up to Huei and mm-hmm. you know saw a lot of the battles with the marines were, you know during the Tet offensive and stuff but i remember driving the motorcycle and there's no bridges a lot of times there's no bridges across these rivers you have to take a little ferry across and so here i am like the only white dude for miles around i'd pull up to these little stops waiting for the ferry to come and these kids would come out of these little huts and they'd see me and they come out and I'm like okay let's see if these little kids coming out mm-hmm. and you know I'm a big white dude who's got hair all over his body <laughs> and you know the vietnamese don't have any body hair no and so they'd never seen it before and they looked up they're looking at my arm and they'd start coming up to me and these little kids would start touching my arm and they'd like start laughing and like call me a gorilla and yep. shit and I finally, I would just grab their little hands and I'd like rub it all over my chest, which was like a big <laughs> fur ball. And they'd like freak out and stuff. And I had a great time. And so I did Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And I met this woman in, um, in, where what city was I in? In, uh, in Hanoi. Yeah. And I was saying, oh, I'm going to go, I want to go um, to Japan and teach English. She's like, dude, come to Seoul, Korea. And come, like, I'll hook you up with jobs. Literally the day your plane lands. I'll get you jobs. They're trying to globalize their economy right now. They need native English speakers. Like, trust me, it's good. You have good money and whatever. I'm like, okay, I'm out of money. So yeah, she told me how much she made. I'm like, okay, let's go. And so I changed my ticket and I flew to like Seoul and from Vietnam from Vietnam. And dude, that was another roller coaster. I ended up living there for a year. Loved it and uh, banked a ton of cash. Met some epic people there. Um, I still had my military ID, mm-hmm. so I could get on to post. So I was like the favorite. I was teaching English mm-hmm. with all these other guys, and they, you know, they didn't have an army ID. They couldn't get on the base. So I became best friends with like everybody that wanted to get signed onto the post, so they could go eat American food, mm-hmm. and I'd go to the office ops- stuff at the PX exactly. Yep. And so I'd go there, and like I'd go to dinner and having, you know, be eating. Main lobster for eight dollars at the officers' club. It I was love like, that. I'd like, you know, my girlfriends at the time, I was dating a couple of girls from California, and they were like, dude, let's go to the officers' club because they were just, you know, tired of eating Korean food on the mm-hmm. market, you know, in, in the economy. And so they'd come on to boat pay, base. It was like the best, like an aphrodisiac having that ID Nice, it was great. Loved it. <laughs> So then eventually I saved my money. I came back and then I got back. My parents were living in Pennsylvania. My grandmother just died. I bought her car. I'm like, fuck it. I'm not living in the East Coast. I want to get into the outdoor industry. Where's the epicenter of outdoor in America? I'm like, I'm going to Boulder, Colorado. But before I did that, I tried to rekindle old flames with the girl that I dated in Korea who lived, she was a teacher in Reno. That like completely exploded. We couldn't get back together. It was just too much. So then I went back and lived in this dude's basement in Boulder till, you know, framing houses until I applied for a job at the North Face and I applied for a job at Specialized Bike or um, Performance Bicycles. So I worked two jobs, seven days a week. You know, I was making $6.45. Mm-hmm. That was like remember what they days. paid yeah. and like making nothing. And uh, finally, the North Face needed a full-time like sales selling supervisor. I'm like, I'm there health benefits like making nine dollars an hour i was like yes and um worked out for a year and they're like hey we need a rep in new york city and that was when the north face was just starting to blow up yeah and they're so, starting to
0: like open stores and shit
1: yeah, yeah they're they'd have been opening stores but they needed a wholesale sales rep and so here i am in the outdoor like getting into like crazy rock climbing mm-hmm. skiing like it was a blast and then moving to new york city to be a rep and I thought I'd be selling ski shops and climbing shops and outdoor stores, but it was like men's stores. Mm -hmm. Like it was all these like, you know, Arab guys that are just traders that are buying jackets in Harlem for drug dealers. And so I was like, Holy shit, man, this is not Boulder, Colorado anymore. And so, um, I learned that business from a, a great rep I was with for, for a year and a half, two years. And then, um, Left in 2001 and then traveled again, went to um, Africa, traveled all over mm-hmm. Africa, came back a week before 9-11, was out for a run, running to the gym, the plane flew over my head on the Hudson, I was on the running trail, running north, plane flies over me, boom, And I remember running past a guy who's like, holy shit. And I turned around and I saw it. It was a crystal blue day. And I saw the hole in the side of the building. And you could see the smoke coming out the other side. And I was like, what just happened, man? He's like, dude, a plane just hit the tower. And I was like, like a little commuter plane? He's like, no, man, like a jumbo jet. And I was like, holy shit. So I looked for a while and I'm like, man, this is weird. I ran to the gym, which happened to be Chelsea Piers, which Mm -hmm. is on a pier overlooking lower Manhattan. So I'm on a machine and I saw the second plane hit it. And then I'm still working out. By that time people are coming up from lower Manhattan on the trail on the on the biking trail. And then I can remember the first one falling Mm -hmm. and I'm still at the gym. I see George Bush on the TV. I'm like, holy shit, this is fucked up. I run home, run into my apartment, grab my camera, run back onto the West Side Highway start taking photographs because at this point there's only one trade center tower yeah. left and so i'm starting to take pictures and, and as i'm taking pictures of the tower it's falling so i have a series of pictures of the, the tower as just, it's falling just as it's falling oh, man. Wild. and i was like holy shit I ran back called my family who's also living in manhattan everybody was okay great a buddy of mine was coming in that day from california it was like the last flight to land in LaGuardia. Before they, sh- they locked everything before down. they locked yeah. it. he had to walk into manhattan across a bridge from like queens which took him forever but i was in manhattan those um like the two months that lead that was after 9-11 man it was like i don't want to say the coolest thing but it was pretty amazing how the entire population of that city was kind of aligned man we were like yeah. in shock and like people like took care of each other and were nice to each other which i'd never experienced yeah new yorkers this... being nice to each other is a definite rarity <laughs> dude it was it's rare it was yeah. like everybody was in trauma and it lasted for about two months and then it was over but it was like the best two months man of being in that city it was amazing people like pulling together I'm like it must this must have been what it was like during world war Two right you know some other traumatic times in our history and it was amazing you know we all had this shared experience of being like punched in the face and um you know i kept my camera with me everywhere i went over that island and seeing the pictures of the people that were missing and Mm -hmm. stuff and the pile that was there i had buddies of mine that i went to college with there were firemen that were pulling like you know body parts out of that thing which was nuts and um yeah so after that I started my sales agency for repping and the first brand I picked up was this little brand called Canada goose. Mm. And, um, it's a big brand. It's a big brand. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. They make good stuff. They make great stuff. Great brand, great Mm -hmm. people. It's a family run business. Um, the Reese family up in Toronto, I met with, uh, the grandson of the founder, who was the CEO at the time we met in union square in 2001 and um he hired me to launch the brand in the united states and yeah it was an amazing ride i was with them for about 14 years Mm. and um it was globally they were doing 2.5 million and by the time we left we were you know half a billion dollars by that time so it was unbelievable growth so that was one of the brands that i'd launched i worked with scarpa footwear ski boots climbing boots his
0: favorite his favorite still
1: yeah, I'll be rocking those. Yeah, there you go. I'll be rocking those um, on uh, my birthday on Saturday when Grizz and I go out and do some climbing in Red Rocks. And uh, Hester Gloves was another one mm-hmm. that we picked up. That was another one that was great. Family-run business. Um, yeah, and so that was the my repping business, which is great. It's unfortunate that whole industry kind of went through a huge change where um, you know, reps were treated well generally, you know, you could make a decent living being a rep and but as the internet started chipping yeah, away and popped up, yeah, you know, retail stores started dying, brands started squeezing the reps, they took more accounts in-house, and just the evolution of that job started like getting snuffed out and um, you know, I saw the writing on the wall. I'm like, man, this is not, you know, a sustainable business. You know, unless you have, you know, a good brand that, you know, wants to keep you around, which is rare to find. I mean, even the big brands and the best brands, they get bought and sold. and yep. New guys come in and have new plans for the brands. So I saw the writing on the wall there. And, you know, luckily I had started out a year in 2004. It's mm-hmm. my 20th time, 20th year coming to Shotcha too. And um, with a bunch of guys that I was with the North Face with too. hmm And we started it in 2004. And, um, you know, I'd kind of neglected it over the years because the repping business was doing great and Candy Goose was going bananas. And, you know, when that business started winding down, you know, my sister who had helped me grow that business, she was going through transition too because the company that she was running sales for Mm -hmm. had also gone through two changes of ownership. And so you know, she's unbelievably ta- talented and was one of the huge reasons Canada goose got so big and so successful. It was a lot of her hard work and her smarts. And so we basically said, all right, well, we kind of have the playbook cause we've seen this happen with a few brands we've been with. Let's, um, let's shutter those other businesses and really focus on Audi gear. And that was like 2018, 2019. And so that's when we kind of doubled down on the show and, 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 you know, design and development and really growing that brand.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you did, man. I'm glad you brought it back because, I mean, there's some times I remember where I busted your balls a little bit where I'm like, what the fuck you doing, man? Like, you got a great brand, you've got great product, and you fucking are ignoring it. Like, get after it.
1: Yeah. And yeah. you did.
0: And you did. And you brought it back. And, and I saw it start to come back. And I'm like, yeah, man, good. He's bringing it back. It's coming back. And then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you guys started doing more cool stuff and more cool stuff. And
1: yeah, now here we are. Snowballs rolling downhill. Yeah,
0: I like it. I like I like it. Thanks. I think, I think it's a unique direction that you guys have kind of spearheaded and are doing really, really well with. So I haven't seen anybody like really taking up a, a brand position and doing the things that you're doing with like combining the lifestyle and the tactical piece together like you guys have done it. So it's, it's cool to watch.
1: Yeah. And hopefully that's a good direction to go in. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but it's kind of like pairing my sense of humor and light side, you know, mm-hmm. the Hawaiian shirts, the Hawaiian prints. Yeah. I mean, I remember in, in Shacha 2018, I'm like, man, I love my Patagonia Aloha mm-hmm. shirts. I like wear them all the time. And I'm like, Andrew Buideman, who you mm-hmm. actually introduced me to yeah. for pinup art. Yep. Cause he did a lot of the pinup stuff yeah, for us does. early on. Yeah. He
0: does a great job. He
1: does a great job. And so I'm. I, we had drinks at SHOT Show 2018. I'm like, Andrew, I want to commission you to do a design for me. He's mm-hmm. like, bro, totally in my wheelhouse. I got you. I'm like, all right. And that's when he did Poppies of War, mm-hmm. you know, the g GW shirt, yep. the poppies from Afghanistan, the Soviet weapons, yep. the American weapons. I mean, that was kind of like the home run that he hit right out of the gate. And it kind of started us on this trajectory. I'm like, wow, man. There's a real appetite for, you know, something that guys can wear off duty when they just want to kick back and have beers and chill out. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about it is, if you look at that shirt, it just looks like a Hawaiian shirt until you're at a party and you're having a drink and you're like, like right up on it, yeah. Holy shit, dude! There's like AKs on your shirt. (laughs) Exactly. You're (laughs) like, what the? I remember I was at outdoor retailer and I had the pattern on a belt, Mm -hmm. and this woman saw the flowers on it and she's like, dude, I want that belt. And I'm like all right, I'm happy to sell this belt sample to you. But before I do, just take a closer look at the belt. And so she looked down and she started seeing all the guns in it. She's like, Oh, (laughs) all right. Thanks for letting me know. She's like, yeah, I don't want it anymore. I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, I I thought so. Thought not. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then, um, I remember, let's see. So when did you were actually my first apparel design, like job, like, working together, doing a collaborative design effort. So, like, we did some we did some cool shit early on. And self-admittedly, like, it was my first ad- crack at apparel. Like, I'd done, like, weapons, accessory stuff a lot with Surefire, with lights and other things, other gadgetry. So, like, I was good on, like, the hard goods side of the house and, like, had a really good idea with that. But, like, I had some ideas of what I wanted certain technical pieces to do. And so we came up with...
1: What was it, the Overwatch?
0: Yeah, we the Overwatch that. and the Sentinel. Yeah, we did the Sentinel and the yeah. Overwatch. The Sentinel or the Overwatch is more geared towards assaulters, and the um, the uh, Overwatch is more geared towards like a recce sniper right. section. And so, right. yeah, I mean, you were a great sport, and like <laughs> did and like I think the ideas were valid, but my I think where I failed is like I just had no understanding of like how much needle time those fucking two pieces were going to have to be on, like, the cost associated. Dude, it was ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I, I designed the fucking, you know. Year- My
1: factory called me, and they're yeah. like, you understand how many hours are going into this rec? Mm-hmm. the Overwatch Anorak, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no. They're like, bro, it, we can make two Toyota Camrys faster than right. we can make this thing.
0: Yeah, so I think that's, I mean, I certainly not being good at design, but, like, conceptual design and having an understanding of, like, End user features that you know I could see that people wanted, and I think like they were valid. Like people were coming up and validating the design and being like, "Yeah, that's fucking awesome." But it was just I didn't understand the production cost. Oh yeah, I lost so much
1: money on that motherfucker. Cost of goods,
0: cost of, but lost leader because it did get you a shit ton of a uh, it did get you a shit ton of attention on the Yes,
1: brand. it was a marketing piece yeah. as opposed to like okay let's yeah. make some money off this yeah. one. No, it was marketing. Yeah. You're I mean, correct. Yeah, looking back and the you know the archives, looking back at the Sentinel and yeah. the Anorak and working with you on that. I mean, I was really excited because you were just coming back from being deployed. Mm. You saw a real need there and yeah. you know, I was like, "Okay, man, like you sounded like you knew what you were talking about." And so you know, diving into it. I mean, it was a fun project because I also like designing mm-hmm. and also like working with end users and getting hearing the feedback from the field and, and making something that makes somebody's job much easier, which mm-hmm. was the ultimate reason that we started the company in the first place was yeah. to produce products that they weren't getting in their normal governmental channels. And yeah i had a great time and then when the price tag came in and you know north american manufacturing and yeah. all the crazy cool shit we put into that thing i mean yeah it was definitely a labor of love yeah and it was like giving birth to a baby yeah if it i is, had a vagina it would have been like yeah. majorly stretched out. yeah by i now.
0: mean i still you, you're not gonna believe this i still have the first i still have that jacket it's still hanging in my closet i'll send you a picture it when i get home <laughs> yeah i still have it um Great. it's a, It was a great piece. And I think all of the, all the end user inspired features were definitely valid. Oh yeah. They were the thing, cool. The thing that we just fucked up on is like, I had no clue of what cogs are, you know, like at the time I didn't even know what cogs, was, what cost of goods and services. Yeah. Like I had no yeah. idea what the cost of goods to manufacture, like source the material yeah. and manufacture that thing was going to be. And then, you know, having no idea of like on the business end of like margin and like, you know, sales strategy and stuff like that. Like in my mind, I was just like, well, but the guys need it. Like I, I've just spent an, you know, a whole deployment freezing my ass off on the side of a mountain, getting rained and snowed on. And I needed this capability and I needed these features and I didn't fucking have them and I want them, you know? And like, (laughs) um, and you did, you did a great job and listened and we, we put it together. And I think we were both excited about the project and it just was outrageously fucking just, we priced ourselves out of the market on it. Yeah. So, and that was pre-design that was pre um, design school era for me. So Oh, that's right. Yeah, I ended up going to design school where I learned all of this shit, like business-related things and relative to design and manufacturing and cost of goods and materials and, like, all the things that I didn't know prior to that. And so then I ended up, like, it served me well later because I ended up doing a couple. Did you,
1: did you ever think about calling up the phone, like, Todd? Gotta apologize, man. I just learned about all of the hard shit that you were doing behind the scenes that I had yeah. no clue on. You just got it just now. Ah, uh, right. yeah. Fifteen years I later, <laughs> I got the apology. All right. Yes, I'm sorry. Um,
0: yeah, but it. Uh, you know, I I went on to do design projects with for apparel with a couple other companies, and then like Beyond was one of them. Oh, that's and, right. Um, we did. Uh, they did a run of our camouflage, which was really awesome. In um, a soft shell, but those two pieces—the action shirt and the um, what became the rig light pant—I um, actually designed with all of the, my newfound knowledge from design school, and it uh, the rig light pant went on and became one of their most popular selling pants. And they made, no, no kidding. they made a good seven figure. They sold, they sold a shit ton of those to the Air Force, pararescue guys, and like it was, it was their best selling pant.
1: No kidding. Yeah,
0: And then um, my later project with them was um, the last one I did um, was the Yuba I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it was an Anorak rain shell that was like super packable and it like packs down this big. Right. Yeah. I designed that and it like same thing. Oh, I wow. Went gangbusters. And so like, yeah, I, so I, I came back and had two, two big wins under my belt with beyond with a uh, apparel design and collaborative design stuff. And it, that did, it did well for them. So, That's great. So yes, I I fixed my, I fixed my (laughs) issues of, of what I call the $10,000 backpack. Um, I call this, what I essentially did in that situation, the $10,000 backpacks syndrome is I was at mystery ranch with those guys. And I sat in a meeting where Navy SEALs came in and they were like, we want it to be this. And we want a carbon fiber molded frame and we want titanium hardware and and we want this and we want this and we want this. And like, You know, Dana Gleason, awesome, like legend in the industry. Sure, sure. Sat there and looked at him, and he just laughed. He just chuckled his, like, hearty chuckle, and he's like, well, hold on a second, fellas, and, you know, and he started thinking about it, and he's like, pretty sure you guys just came up with the $10,000 backpack. And he's like, you know, because they wanted so much, like, custom and space-age, super lightweight material. You know, they wanted, like, titanium hardware on it, you know. It's crazy. And they wanted a carbon fiber frame. They wanted all this crazy stuff, and he's like, okay. So he started, because he's been doing it for so many years, he started putting pen to paper. and He's like, oh, well, it's going to cost me this much to R&D that. And it was like six figures. And then he's like, and I think these guys were from Dev Group. I think they were from SEAL Team 6. But he's like, you know, so they were used to like nobody ever telling him no. <laughs> and so he started laughing and he's like, well, how, much, how many of these are you guys going to buy? And they're like, oh, it's just for our troop. <laughs> and he's like, so you want me to sink $350,000 into R&D to sell you 30 of these at 10 grand a pop? You know, that's not going to be, that's not going to get me my money back. So he, uh, you know, so then after watching that meeting and like watching this whole thing go down, I was like, oh, the $10,000 backpack syndrome. Yeah. And I was like, I did that to Todd. Yeah. Not intentionally, yeah. but I designed the $10,000 Anorak. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> do you, yeah. Do you
1: still have any of them? Dude, I, we have some in the museum. Actually, yeah. we had a couple left. We kept them on the website because yeah. it's a cool piece to have. Yeah. And we had a couple of rock stars, literal rock stars, buy a couple. I'm like, who just bought this? It's an $800 piece. Yeah. And I'm barely making my money back at $800. Uh-huh. And we sold one recently. Oh, good. Yeah. Well good. Yeah. Well, then fuck you and your apology. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, yeah. So, speaking of rock stars, um, did you hang out with Post Malone last night? Oh. Mary told me
1: a little story today. Well, I'll let Mary tell the story because okay. I needed my beauty sleep. Oh, so you did not. You Did you, did you punch out? You I did, did, man. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. You didn't go? I didn't go.
0: What is wrong
1: with you? I know, man. I guess I'm just not a big enough fan or something. Or, you know, I'm just a whim. You went,
0: didn't you? Yeah.
1: Yeah, Eric went. Yeah. He checked it out. Yeah. And he, I I can't believe that kid is still standing right now, man, because Yeah, he, he told me we were we were in the he booth he was like, sleep. Bro, I've never had a Red Bull in my life,
0: but I might did you drink one? Oh no. seriously. No, you,
1: you, you should have, have, have you man. Should have. You should have. Yeah. No, but I heard it was pretty epic. I heard the story and it was. Yeah, Mary cool. said
0: did she went and hung I thought I assumed that you would be there with her.
1: No. I mean she's it would be a cool. wild cat. Your sister's a oh, wild dude. Cat, We definitely bro. have we're yin and yang, man. Yeah. Like yeah. I'm in bed by nine o'clock, like, you know, snuggling in my bed and Mm -hmm. she's out like tearing it up. Yeah. So she went, she went out and tore
0: it up with Post Malone. She told me, she's like, I passed out on his couch at some point. She goes, I think it was like six in the morning. I was like, she's like, he came by and tapped my foot and I was like, good night. I'm going to bed and like went (laughs) up to his room. She said he was a blast to hang out with. I've heard a lot of people say that because I know a few people in the industry that like hang out with him pretty regularly. Yeah, And I love how much he supports, you know, the military and the second amendment, like crowd and like, he loves, you know, guns and he trains, you know, people talk, I see comments where people are talking shit, but he like legitimately takes it seriously. And he trains with like top tier dudes and he's, he's not a, he's not an idiot with a gun. Like he knows what, he knows what's up. Oh so, dude.
1: Yeah. I heard he's like John Wick action, yeah, man. Yeah. Like the training that he's like done. I mean, yeah. he's a young guy. Yep. And he's athletic mm-hmm. and he has the resources and, you know, yeah. that's a great combination of being a good, a good shooter. Yeah. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I've heard stuff. And I was even in the booth today talking to a couple of other guys that have training uh, companies and, uh, and work with other brands. And they're mm-hmm. like, Todd, if you see him, can you thank him? Because, He's, like, bought so much stuff off of our website. Yeah. And you hear that in this industry. Like, oh, my gosh, man, we got this huge order. We had no idea who it was for, what it mm-hmm. was for. But somebody told me it was Post Malone. And they're yeah. like, man, if you ever hear from him, like, thank him, man, because it was a great order, and he's a great customer.
0: Yeah. Good dude. Yeah. I like, what What do you call it, a net, net positive gain, or what do you call it? He's
1: a... Yeah, net positive for the industry. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Like, Although, he definitely walks. T- that, I mean, that's a tightrope walk. Yeah. He's got to walk because... Mm-hmm. You know, he's passionate about this, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not necessarily the best look for his, you know, yeah,
0: for what he's doing. I yeah. don't think he cares, though. I think he's been, he's so successful now at this point, which good on him. Great on him for being, like, being as successful as he is. I don't think, I don't know if he cares that much anymore.
1: Really? Yeah. I think you always have to care. I think
0: you just have to be careful, man. What well, do you think? You hung out with him. Do you think he, ca- do you think he cares about what, you know, like, People talking shit about what he's doing. I would love to I'm gonna have to get his ass on the podcast. <laughs> is what I'm, gonna have to do. I'm gonna work on. He's getting still here. He's still here. On, I'm
1: gonna work on getting him on the podcast. Well, maybe any of your listeners are listening now, I'll
0: be like Mary, get me Post Malone. Let's get him on the podcast. <laughs> I want to talk to him. I want to thank him for all the positive things he's doing for the industry. Yeah, that'd be great. So yeah, so out of here, man. So where do you see? Gear going? Do you have like strategic plans going in, into this next year? Like, what are your big ticket items in terms of product development? Like, you got because you guys have some really cool products right now. You have got like the Hawaiian shirts that you're talking about. You guys make some great like um inclement weather apparel, like tech apparel. Yep. You guys have always done that. Softshell right. was like fucking you. You're one of the persons that spearheaded softshell in the industry. Were the
1: first ones to do a multicam soft shell yeah. yeah. A lot back of people when, don't know that. Yeah, back one. A lot of people say another yeah. company and based in Vancouver did it yeah. first. Fuck I'm you, like, Arcteryx.
0: No. Fuck you. <laughs> now Arcteryx makes they make really good shit, but I'm really not stoked on like what's going. I don't know what the fuck's going on with their company, but like yeah. they got they've been bought and sold so many times. Like I don't know who the new corporate leadership is, but I used to have really really great connects. It. I mean, I still I still have a pro account with them right. that was given like set up and given to me by my friends at Leaf. Right. And like this last year we tried to order some new leaf gear and they were like, "Oh, well, your account." So I had to call the company cuz I'm like cuz it says in my pro account like when you log on to the back end of my pro account it says leaf. And I'm like, "Bro, like I my I called the I can't remember who I talked to over there. Customer like, service or?" Yeah, yeah, I started in customer service and they couldn't help me, so I ended up talking to some VP over there and I'm like, "Look, but I, I I was opened a professional industry professional account by the leaf team on the leaf side of the house to get pro deals on leaf gear because that's right. what I do. I'm a firearms instructor right. and I'm a hunter and that I need I need your gear in camo. I don't need or in crocodile. I don't need it in fucking yeah. goddamn you know chartreuse. Like right. give, like I need I yeah. need what I need. So yeah. why aren't I giving access? Because I used to, on the back end, you'd get access to, in the portal, you you know, when you had a ProForm account, you'd log in and you get, you could either buy sports side of the house stuff or you could buy Leaf. Right. And I usually always just used to buy Leaf. Right. And um, I think a couple of times I bought sports stuff. Right. Um, but it was because they had it in the right colors. Right. It wasn't in, like, all the fucking <laughs> stupid, dumb, Chartreuse. fucking not masculine colors that they yeah. fucking do in the sports side of the house. Yeah. Um, you know,
1: for all... Well, yeah. you know what they've... I mean, not to their defense, but to yeah. explain a little bit. I mean, you have to understand that that company has grown so big and it's grown big on the commercial side, right? Yeah. The ski, hunt, outdoor side of things. And Leaf was started by a bunch of passionate guys. But if you look at the overall business, I mean, you got to look at, the bean counter's got to take mm-hmm. a look. And they say, okay, how big is our commercial business? Yeah. How big is our leaf business? And then they look and they say, wait a minute. We sell more in this one style and one color in one fleece jacket than we do all of leaf? Like, why does leaf exist? Let's just sell more of that one fleece color. Okay, so but devil's becomes, advocate
0: on that is if they would stop being cunts about like, who they sell Leaf Gear to and they opened it up to the commercial market and made it commercially available for like the 2A
1: crowd, Yeah, that would not be the case. Well, they don't want to do that yeah, because that's going to hurt their reputation. Yeah, because they're bitches. I mean, a lot of companies, and I don't want to name other names, but there's other companies out there that if their core customer I think realized you name, I think you how name many them. bodies have been stacked, uh, people wearing these core outdoor brands. I think you're talking about Patagonia. If you don't want to say it, I'll say <laughs> it. <Okay. laughs> All right. If their core customer base realized that, you know, I mean, none be, of these fucking hippies, they, a bit they don't upset. listen.
0: They don't listen to the podcast. Okay. The type of people that you're afraid of offending. Don't listen <laughs> to the podcast. Like savage meat eaters. Listen to this podcast. So yeah, Patagonia. A lot of people don't understand that Patagonia has a contract at SOCOM where they have an IDIQ contract that for the PCU system, which is the protective combat uniform, which is a nine layered system. And they've had that contract for what fucking shit a lot of years man. 18 years yeah long time yep yep yeah so 16 18 years and my friend over there like I my friend over there runs the program and he does he's a great dude and he you know he's been doing it the whole time and fantastic dude phenomenal dude but like I've told Eric yeah and you're on yeah great dude love you Eric if you ever listen to this um phenomenal dude right super supportive guy like him and I have like he's mentored me on some projects before and like, I can't say enough good things about that dude. Right. I don't know how he's managed to like navigate the politics over there because you know, there's things that I agree with and I'm aligned with, with Patagonia in terms of environmentalism, but they fuck man, they just have gone too far
1: in the cuckoo Kool-Aid for me. And so yeah, I was actually funny. You say that because I was um, right before Christmas, I was in New York city Doing some last minute shopping, and I popped in. I was in Soho. I popped into the the store down there. They had a great store. Mm-hmm. I walk in and I look around, and the models that they have, mm-hmm. they're morbidly obese models in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you know, you get this 250 pound dude running, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that guy's really fat, and it's a plastic model. I'm like, that's not really attractive. And they had the same female equivalent, and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, she's huge!" And then I started walking upstairs, which was generally the men's department. And you know, they had a big poster on the you know raw brick wall, Mm -hmm. total Soho, like you know, cool cool guy stuff. And the wall it said, instead of men's department or men's area, it said masculine. And it was like, I'm like, they can't say men's anymore. No, I'm like, it's masculine fit. So if I'm a woman or, you know, I can wear it and not feel bad about it. What do they
0: call it? Is it gender discrimination if they do that?
1: Yeah. Fucking dumb. It's it, the dumbest shit There's shitter. a word for that? Gender yeah. disc... Okay. All
0: yeah, right. It's gender discrimination. I was if a little bit. you call bit... a man a man and a woman or a woman a woman and yeah. you're making an assumption that you know what they, how they want to be identified or some, I don't know, some stupid fucking bullshit. Anyway. They're too far out of the cuckoo. They've gone way too far on the cuckoo side of the house. Yeah. I love Patagonia for years and years and years. You did too. Like we I wore their shit and like supported their like their PCU program. Yeah. All the things on the military side of the
1: house. I will say this though, and I don't know, this is relatively new, is that well, back up a little bit. Yeah. Yvonne Schnard, founder of Patagonia, Mm -hmm. he was an army vet. Yeah. He's a veteran. He spent time in Korea freezing his ass off. Mm-hmm. which is kind of the birth of that whole Lost yeah. Arrow program. And so, you know, I heard he really went, you know, on a rampage cuz people fought him and said we shouldn't do this and he fired a lot of people that said mm-hmm. if you're not supporting this program, you're out. Yeah. So that was 20 years ago or 18 years ago when he started launching Lost Arrow on the military side of things. Well, fast forward the 18 years, Yvonne is now in his mid-80s. And I think, you know, the whole company is transitioning to this trust or something. However, they the new ownership structure that they've, they've set up for themselves, well, one of the things that they did in this process was they sold off Lost Arrow. So it's no longer part of Patagonia. Oh, wild. So they disconnected, huh? They did. And Eric is still running it. Mm-hmm. And Eric started his own company. So it's still Eric and his team, but it's no longer Patagonia. Oh, wild. Okay. Yeah. So there is decoupling. So I think they were starting to feel a little bit of the pressure. And I think Yvonne is, you know, sunsetting. And I think the management was like, okay, we need, this is a ticking time bomb. We no longer have our founders cover, you know, this right. could become a problem for us. So they so decoupled they, it. They pushed the eject button. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's good. Yeah. I, I, I okay. It'll so give Eric a little bit more freedom to, yeah. Know. He
0: was handcuffed a lot on a lot of things that he wanted to do. So like, that's good. Um, yeah. Crazy. I did not, I did not know that. That's kind of a new, yeah, it's that's too, a new thing. I, I'm like, disappointed in the direction things are going with that company. But like the, uh, you know, Vaughn, he's still one of my, like, kind of my business Bible is still, like, let my people go surfing. Love still, like, book. one of the Love that book. best books on business yeah. and branding and, like, uh, manufacturing that I've ever read. So, if you guys are trying to start a company out there and um, doing an
1: apparel or doing any type of
0: outdoor gear or any type of manufacturing business, you should read that book.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that inspired me, too, when mm-hmm. I was on my journey with Audi Gear, too, is that was a good one. Another one that I got turned on to was the guy that started Cliff Bar. Hmm, And I think his name is Erickson, Gary Erickson, maybe. He wrote a good book also about, you know, how he started, you know, Cliff Bar. And it's another pretty inspirational sort of uh, take on the outdoor industry and starting business and being passionate. And, you know, I think some of the successful businesses in the outdoor industry and in the firearms industry as well, started by really passionate founders that love what they do. Yeah. And, you know, eventually you hit a home run you know if you stick if you stick it out and you do keep doing the basic blocking and tackling yeah. you know keep showing up and grind through it every day yeah you can grow you know a beautiful company but you have to be in it for the right reasons and you know it has to be you know something that somebody wants to buy but yeah you know passionate people figure it out
0: well i think all these things shifting around with like leaf and lost arrow and all this stuff like really it's but good for you. It's good for Audi Gear. Like yeah. puts you
1: guys in a great position. I smile because yeah. you know I'm definitely a scrapper yeah. and I grind it out too, and I'm gritty, and so um, you know I'm still doing it after 20 years. I'm still standing, and I've seen people come and go, and mm-hmm. you know company after company buying so other comp- mm-hmm. other competitors, and you know they're falling into the same tar pits and sand traps, and I'm just like you know smiling, and I'm still standing and slugging it out. It's mm-hmm. good. Yeah. But directionally, I think we're definitely growing and we want to keep producing really epic products. And I think, you know, listening to the end user and talking to them and finding out what problems you can solve, Mm -hmm. you know, much like our little adventure with the Anoraks, man. It's like you saw a need and, you know, I got your passion and, you know, that's the kind of stuff that when it comes you know, my way, I definitely stop what I'm doing. And I listen because there's a bunch of gold and fairy dust coming my direction. And you got to be in a certain mindset to absorb it and take it in because so many of these larger companies, you know, they've got bean counters that, and so many layers of, of management that good ideas never trickle down into some of the, you know, production stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, we saw today at, uh, we went by the Surefire booth, you know, like Surefire was my first consulting gig out of the military. And I,
1: a lot of people don't know
0: this, but I helped, like I, the vampire technology was my, 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 that was my design, uh, concept. And that came from me teaching a low light class to Naval Special Warfare and some guys from dev group that were at Warcom that had transitioned over to Warcom. Uh, I'm not going to say his name, but he's kind of a famous dude in the industry. And uh, he worked, he was on the Jessica Lynch rescue and uh, he went through my course and it was all like white light employment CQB stuff. And he, you know, because part of that was like my charter at Surefire, part of my contract was uh, military, uh, military relations and like consumer education on our product sets. Right. So my job was to go out there and train these guys and teach them how to use the tools. Right. And so I did that through a CQB, low light CQB class for white light employment. And what happened was they... Um, he pulled me aside after the course and he was like, Hey, you know, cause it was a five day course. And he was like, Hey, this was a really great course and it was well run and you did a great job and your, your concepts are awesome. But like we, we, we're putting together a new SOP where we're just going to go straight, you know, IR. We're like taking white lights off guns and like, we're not going to run white lights on guns anymore. And my mind was like blown. I was like, uh, I thought that was stupid as fuck. Um, and I was like, Oh, okay. But you know, I'm fucking not going to sit there and argue with the, you know,
1: is it still that way? No, no, no. They've no, gone no, back. No.
0: Yeah, they went back. They figured out in Iraq that like <laughs> fast-paced urban fighting and CQB, you need fucking white lights on guns. So, um, But for a while, they that's what their stance was. And so I took that information back to Surefire and they were like, you know, they started panicking because Naval Special Warfare was a huge customer and they were buying literally tens of millions of dollars of lights a year to put on their weapon systems. Right. And so, you know, I'm sitting in this room with like all the C-suite executives at surefire and they're like, Oh, this, that, the other. And it just popped into my head while I'm sitting there listening to these guys like panic about how all these, they're going to lose all these sales. And I was like, um, why don't we just build an IR light? And they like stopped and they just looked at me like I had a dick growing out of my forehead. (laughs) And the owner of surefire, John Matthews was like, okay, well, do you have some ideas around that? You've got some concepts. And I was like, yeah, I've got some ideas. I was like, we have this aviator light that, you know it's a two stage switch does white light then it does a color and it's for aviation crews to like you know sustain their night vision inside the cockpit looking at things under red lens and then for the air crew to jump out white and light. do external ex uh, you know um yeah uh inspections on the on the aircraft on, with a white light yeah and One. and so i was like we just changed the colored LEDs to IR LED- LEDs problem solved and so he's like Tomorrow morning, we're sitting down, we're having a design, you know, we're going to brainstorm on this design. So I came into his office the next morning, we sat down and he got, and this is how John Matthews, he probably still does it. I mean, he's in his early, I think he's in maybe creeping towards his 90s right now, still comes into the office every day. And he had this way of doing product development where he'd get a legal pad out and he would just like take all these notes. And then he would take those notes and he would talk to a few different people you know, other subject matter experts besides me Yeah, and he would get their opinions on things and he would take those notes. And then if he decided he wanted to run that product, he would hand those notes over to the chief engineering team and they would start working on it. And and I think at that time it was Paul Kim Um, and Paul, you know, Paul was there during all this and I was like, Hey, get me an aviator, put me IR LEDs in it, give me a ring mount and I will go start test doing testing on this. And so that's how it started. Right and we tested through it and i validated the concepts of like taking a white light and an ir light and putting them together. Wow. Fast forward through a development cycle and i was you know deploying to Afghanistan during all this and then coming back from Afghanistan and giving them like right. combat tne and they came up with the m the m720v vampire based off of my concept and my direction and you know they didn't design it exactly how i would have but they 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 got it out and they got wow. it done and when they got it done they Naval Special Warfare came back to the table and they uh, bought a 12 million, $12.6 million contract for Vampire Lights. <laughs> so I thought I was a made man. I'm like, fuck, dude. Oh, no. I just wrote my ticket in this industry. Oh, I no. will never, like, I'm a fucking, I'm like Joe Pesci and fucking Goodfellas up in this motherfucker. Like, nobody's going to ever fire me from Shirt fire. Wrong. Dude, what happened? One of the chief engineers who didn't like me because I was a fucking asshole to him during the development process because he thought he knew better than the end user who had to go shoot dudes with this piece of gear. Yeah, He was an engineer and thought he knew better on how to like set up the switching and what to do with it. And so him and I were constantly arguing during the development process. So he hated my guts. And so he started this rumor that I was going to sue the company for part of the award contract. And nobody asked me, you know, hey, is this true? Like, just made the assumption, and they're like, um, yeah, we decided not to renew your contract. And so I got laid off.
1: Ah. After giving them a $12 million idea. Yeah. Ah.
0: It was my first consulting gig, and... Wow. I was
1: happy making my
0: six... You know, they were paying me, like, $103,000 a year to do, to, you know, to come in and do these things, and, and, uh, yeah. But, yeah, it's a... Lesson learned. lesson learned, so... So wow, do you know yeah. where that engineer is today? Oh no, I have no idea where he's at today. <laughs> I know he's not at Surefire anymore. He hasn't been at Surefire for years because I've asked about him a couple times. But like, the more things like you know the the, the you know they, what's the old saying? The, the more they the more they change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, the yeah So things. we went in there today, and they were like, you know, still like n- nobody in there has any idea who I am right. now. And you know, no, like none of the old people that I worked with work right. there anymore. Right. And so it's just it's just they've grown into this big monster company like you were saying that like you should recognize, you know, these you know, you should recognize gold when somebody like lays a gold egg in your lap, you should recognize it. And so they continue to do, you know, crazy things and like looking at their marketing models and what they're doing now, like they've gone full circle. Like back in my day in the early two thousands, we knew Like having a hotspot and a high output light that gets lots of candela to like so that you can see it under a magnified optic for at distance and remove somebody's visual horizon very effectively in a CQB environment was where the direction we needed to go. And after I left and other dudes got laid off at the company that had combat experience and development experience in the company, somebody got the bright idea to come up with this max vision beam technology, which like gives you this super floody light that has no hotspot and it completely cuts off the balls on your max effective range on your light. And that's right. the development process that they've gone down for years and years and years. Well, now high output lights with a hot spot that you know have lots of candela and lots of punch have come back to the table and they think that they've like rediscovered <laughs> gold again. And I'm like, "You stupid fucks just went in a complete yeah. circle." Yeah. You just went in a huge you just took 20 years to go in a fucking circle
1: you know it never ceases to amaze me i mean i see this too on my side with the soft goods too it's like the same mistakes keep getting played out over Mm -hmm. and over again because there's no continuity of you know there's no one there that remembers the past Mm -hmm. so you get some the new team comes in and they have no idea what the last team was doing or the team before and there's mm-hmm. no one keeping track of the history so then they start redoing the same research and development that had already been taken care of decades before yeah. and you know Eric Graves to his credit he turned me onto a book called you know snafus and you know jungle warfare or something like that i yeah. bought it a couple of years ago and it talks a lot about that about mm-hmm. how you know for example the fabrics that we were using in mm-hmm. vietnam were the most awful fabrics for a tropical environment yeah. because and the North Vietnamese had better uniforms than us during mm-hmm. that during that conflict yep. because they were using this old school woven fabric that mosquito probiscus couldn't get through, so mm-hmm. their guys weren't getting malaria and it was keeping them cool and comfortable in a tropical environment. Meanwhile we're using this really open poplin sort of fabric, which we had to soak in deep to mm-hmm. keep the bugs from getting in. And, you know, the proboscis could go right through it. And, you know, because no one remembered the right fabrics to be using from earlier conflicts. Mm-hmm. And it's just like stupid shit that keeps getting rehashed over and over again. Yeah. And I think didn't a lot of other smaller upstart light companies kind of eat Surefire's lunch and a few different development yeah. projects. Mm mm-hmm. When it came to the switches and yep. some of the other design features, I don't. Yeah, know.
0: they're kind of like their own worst enemy, where they just can't get the hell out of their own way, and they, they, uh, <sighs> you know, because they are, I don't know, they they have this elitist attitude, like some companies get. They get this elitist attitude where they're yeah. like, they don't ha- they don't like to listen to their customers because they think they know better. Oh man! And they stop listening to their customers, and then what happens is like the customers like complain enough that competitors in the market are like. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the whole reason that Sun has become a fucking thing with optics. you got this Chaicom communist fuckbag company that they're owned by, they have direct ties to the fucking PLA and the, C, the CCP. It's not an American company manufacturing things in China. It's a straight up fucking Chaicom company using Americans and using our industry to do R&D for the PLA. <laughs> and all they do is listen to what, people want in the yeah. industry and then they undercut everybody by manufacturing it super at a super great price point. So guys are getting the cutting edge tech that they want at a fucking unbelievable price and their company has exploded because of it. Is there
1: an American solution? we have good. Yeah.
0: T- yeah. We but have an American solution, but we have companies that don't listen to what yeah. American shooters and consumers want and well, are asking for because they think they know better. And so they don't do any type of new R and D or development or build the products that the customers are asking for. Isn't that capitalism though?
1: Isn't it? Isn't that a good thing?
0: I mean, it's I mean, not a good thing when you have, like, the most red-blooded patriotic industry in the in the country that's, you know, super, like, you know, give me liberty or give me death. Fucking, yeah. And they're supporting a chai-com company. Like, go read fucking Stealth War. Go read Unrestricted Warfare. And go read 100-Year Marathon. And they completely lay out their 100-Year Plan on how to completely subvert and destroy yeah. the U.S. without any type of war, like without any type of direct conflict, not shooting a bullet without shooting a bullet. Yeah. And then this is one of their strategies. And like, what's the, like, I gotta be careful what I say here, but like the, we discovered, uh, some shit that went down a year ago. Was it a year ago where Chinese soft sent a bunch of their dudes to come over here on, um, student visas, graduated from, um, they went to college, graduated while they're like soft dudes came over here, graduated from college And then went to training with um, retired soft trainers in our industry and got trained. And then they also ripped off a bunch of our tech, like bought nods and bought a bunch of fucking sensitive items while they were here and took them back to China and helped a company in China develop a bunch of shit. And then like the Internet's just like we we stumbled on this like a year ago. And like talked about it briefly a year ago on, on social media. Yeah. And like now the industry's just finding out about it again. But like that's what Chinese they're doing. They're sending yeah. soft guys over here to train with our veterans, and then those guys are going back and training their guys and they're right. stealing tech and
1: taking it back to China. Right. Well, I mean, kind of a good plan, right? Yeah. If if you don't have the resources and the time, you gotta play catch up somehow, right? Yeah. You gotta figure it out. I mean yep. never fight fair. Isn't that what the motto of some mm-hmm. folks are? Yep. I mean, you know, I don't want to say good for them, but, you know, we got to step up our game to be able to catch that shit. That's like the 9-11 hijackers, man. Mm -hmm. They learned to fly planes in Florida. Yes. You know, they didn't learn how to land them. They learned Mm -hmm. how to take them off. Yeah, and
0: and they hijacked them with fucking box cutters. Right. I'm like,
1: you know, I think because we are a capitalist country, we like to make money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if people are offering us money for the services we provide, that kind of blinds us to some of the, you know, not so good side of you know capitalism, where we're actually giving our playbook to folks that don't have our best interests. No, and so it's something we need to watch out for. And I don't know what the solution is. I mean, I think it starts with conversations about it. I mean, learning about what happened, finding out what we can do better to let it not happen again. Mm-hmm. Because I think all of America, all of us in America, want to see America succeed yeah. and go into the future and And, uh, you know, have a successful country for our kids and our grandkids. And, you know, solving these problems now is going to be an important thing to do. Otherwise, yeah, we're going to lose the hundred year war. Yeah, you're absolutely correct.
0: Yeah. And to be clear, like I don't like my best friend's Chinese and and fucking I love Chinese food and Chinese people are usually pretty fucking cool. Yeah. For the most part. But fuck their government. And I find usually like when I hang out in foreign countries with people. Like there's a group of Russians that I hang out with over in, in Australia that are really cool people and they are awesome. And I don't judge them for what their government's doing. They're great. They're great people. And so same thing with, you know, the Chinese, I've met lots of Chinese people that are great, awesome, awesome humans. Right. But
1: like what their government's doing is bullshit. I will say this though. I mean, I still think America is the dream factory, man. It is. I mean, we have so many problems, especially with our educational system however you know we're not robots and as fucked up as it may be yeah we still are creative man and that's our like special sauce is like we can create cool shit Mm -hmm. i mean if you look at what technology has been created by america over the last or the west in the last Mm -hmm. hundred years versus asian countries be that japan or china or korea you know, besides the Betamax, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think what else. And ch- you know, gunpowder a couple thousand years ago. Right. But I'm like, what other technologies have come out of that system? Yeah. I mean, they're great at manufacturing it—smaller, cheaper, faster, better. Okay, we can look at that. We can solve that problem. But who's coming out with the tech? Well, that's why they're stealing. We're still coming out with it, right? Exactly. That's why they steal it? Is they're exactly. not? They don't have a creative. Exactly. Their
0: society, with the way it's structured and how everybody is so
1: heavily monitored, really stifles their creative flow. Yeah. Blow. Thank God. You know, people complain about the Chinese Communist Party, right? But I'm like, thank God, because if they unleashed the power of that 1.4 billion people, mm-hmm. we would definitely be doomed, man. Yeah. But because they have, they're so holding on so tight. It's restricting their creativity. It's restricting and throttling and governing that society and thank God. Mm-hmm. Otherwise we'd be in deep shit. Probably, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The the world according to Todd and Brian. <laughs> this has been a great co- podcast, man. Yeah, man. So yeah. what do you uh what do you what do you want to close with? What kind uh, of dad advice you got?
1: Dad in, advice. In your
0: in your Mr. Rogers sweater. What kind of what kind of good dad advice do you got?
1: Well, I will share this because I have three teenagers and, you know, I'd like to take credit for it, but it was really my wife. And she, when we gave our kids phones and, you know, we knew their girls and dating and boys were starting to come up and stuff. um, We got petrified about, you know, dick pics and the Internet and shit going around. And so the sage advice we gave our son was like, listen, if you're going to do that shit, FaceTime it, man. Right. So there's or no. Snapchat. There's no yeah. evidence of that dick pic, man. It's right. Just in and out. Right. And so, I <laughs> and, do feel b- I do feel bad for those guys because yeah. you know their whole world is you know documented with video and yeah. they can't get away from it.
0: Mm-mm. Yeah, the world's not no the privacy. same. It's not the same world that we grew up in with no phones, no internet, no no nothing. I know. I grew up with penthouse magazines under my that I found under in my grandpa's sink. My grandpa was like a penthouse collecting.
1: Like, he loved penthouse. Dude, he had good taste. Yeah. That was a good rag, man, yeah, back in the day. Yeah, penhouse, Bob Guccione, man. Penthouse magazines, that's how I made it through life when I was young. <laughs> you know what I did with my old penthouses? What did you do? So when I got married, I just had my 20th wedding. You, you know, realize sure right so. now, there's
0: there's people that are probably listening to this that are like, what the fuck is penthouse? It's yeah. a porn mag, case. You guys didn't know.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. It was magazine. a classy one, too. Yeah. It was like... Really great looking models, mm-hmm. and you know, very suggestive stuff. Some good articles too. I think yeah. some r- racy stuff. Yeah, but there's good writing in it. The um, so you know, I had a collection, you know, as a young man. You know, that was there was no know, internet. Yeah. yeah. So when I had my bachelor party up in Vermont, we um, I took all of them up there, and we had a big bonfire. and We burned them. Oh no! I know. I know she all that saved paper. Them. You have
0: saved them. Like then you could have showed your sons. I know. Be like,
1: this is how we did dick
0: pics back in the day, <laughs> in magazines.
1: Well, I ran across all my old uncle's stashes mm-hmm. too back yeah. in their day. I found all their old Playboys from like the nice. '60s and stuff. That was pretty funny.
0: Yeah, Playboy, another another great publication. Yeah. yeah. Is that even around anymore? I don't know. I think they are, aren't they? They still publish these mags, or no? No.
1: Is it digital, but yeah. they're around. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm sure it's like, it, I'd have to research. You could probably get on what, Playboy, and like do a subscription and like get access to a portal where you could, like, I'm sure it's like OnlyFans or some yeah. shit where you could. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Why would they stop doing nudes? I'm like, that, you invented the nude. <laughs> Right, exactly. It was so idiotic. Dumb. Dumb idea. Okay,
0: fairy. so good dad advice. Don't take dick pics and send them to anybody. Yeah. I think it's a good idea. FaceTime it. Yeah. It's
1: great being here, man. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for coming in. This was a great conversation. This was one of my, probably my favorite podcasts. That Come on, yeah? man. Seriously. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's good catching up with a friend from industry that I have history with, and then it's also like you're a good conversationalist. So. Uh, it's almost thanks. like you're you've been around for a while and lived some life and... Done some things.
1: Yeah. I don't think I could have done this 20 years ago no. when I was just young and dumb. Hmm. Just getting into this. No way, man. Yeah. I got the battle scars and it's a show for it. Yeah.
0: Before we get out of here, I've got one last question. Have you seen anything at the show that you has been, you were like, wow, that's rad? <sighs> I
1: wish we did this podcast tomorrow because that's what I'm walking the okay, floor. Well, tomorrow morning, I'm walking the floor. Have I seen anything? Um, I'm trying to think. Let's see. I have seen a little bit of stuff. Um yeah, honestly I've I've been so in my booth in my little microcosm. Mm-hmm. My blinders are on. Chris, if we is there am I missing something? have you heard anything? Are you guys too? walking you guys walking the show? Down? Oh, you know what we did see? What? That was hilarious. So you know that Instagram influencer named Haley Luan? Yeah. So Psyop. Psyops. I always fucking see her and I'm like,
0: You're such a fucking Psyop. I got pictures with her last year. I have her cell phone number, I just never fucking
1: call her. So some of the guys that are working our booth this year, they're awesome, man. They, are, they created a target with her on it. They went to her Instagram page, got a photograph of her wearing like a ski sweater, yeah. holding a picture. It had been like her family. They took the family photograph out, mm-hmm. put like a, a Reaper drone in it over Manhattan. Oh. She's holding it like this and they put like a target silhouette over her oh man because half the industry loves her yeah they'll pin this up on their wall and mm-hmm. you know spank off to it the other half hates her they will actually use it as a target they'll actually and shoot it yeah. happily shooting her face yeah. out so I mean. yeah and she's in on the joke too they we mm-hmm. let her know about it so it's pretty funny we have one hanging in our booth right now if you want to come take a look at it tomorrow yeah, I'll see it tomorrow it's pretty hilarious yeah i'll show you a picture i have on my phone too
0: I'm going to text her and be like, come fucking meet me at the Audi booth and like, let's get a picture. Of this. <laughs> I want to I get a picture
1: with you at this fucking Target. Do it, man. Do it.
0: Well, fuck, man. Thanks for coming by.
1: Yeah. Appreciate your work. Can people find you? Uh, Come find us at SHOT Show 2024, uh, booth number 32203, or, of course, the World Wide Web, mm-hmm. AudiGear.com, And if you see the word spelt out, O-T-T-E, and you wonder how to pronounce it, it rhymes with naughty. Mm-hmm. Just Audi. remember that Audie Gear. Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, great. And are you gonna like? Are, are are we gonna like chat about getting a discount code for my listeners or what? Oh, what we can totally do, do
1: that. Yeah. Do you put? How do you do it? Do you just? mean, we can do.
0: You'll have to set it up on the back end of your website and then give it to me, and then I'll put it out. I'll because this this episode will probably you're probably a few weeks out on this episode, so I got to record the intro and outro, and then I'll just I'll drop the
1: discount code in and like push some sales. I love it. I love it, man. We'll do it.
0: Okay. I'll talk to you about it afterwards.
1: Awesome. Cool.
0: All right. Let's get the fuck out of here.
1: All right, man. Thanks
0: for joining us on this episode of the Lone Element Podcast. We'll check you out on the next episode.
1: Peace. Peace.